You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Leo wanted to be number one, America's foremost male chauvinist, so he practiced at work. You keep your job, you keep the boss happy. Capiche? And he practiced at home. I got us steaks. That kitchen's back there, I uh, like mine red. He was a real swinger on a winning streak. To us. Living out his fantasies. Kink. The top dog, macho man of action. Then, under a full moon, he finally met his match. Hey, what are you doing for the rest of your life? A woman of wit. Dead. He went down as Leo and came up as Cleo. How the hell did I get this body? What happened? In a world of sensitive men. It looks like it's party time. It's a hard-hitting, fast-driving, hysterical new variation on the old switcheroo. Cleo Leo, a ladies' man's woman in a man's man's world, where nothing counts like a good cigar. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, sometimes it's hard to be a woman. Also back with us is Ms. Jill Nelson. Hello. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. This week we're talking about the 1989 movie Cleo Leo, directed by Chuck Vincent. The film stars Scott Baker as Leo Block, a chauvinist pig. He runs an import-export company of some sort of nature. And when he is shot, he returns from the dead as Cleo, who's played by Jane Hamilton. Now living as a woman, the tables are turned on Leo, who has to live in a world where women are treated like meat. So, Jill, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Cleo Leo, and what did you think? The first time I saw it was about three weeks ago. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it very much. I, I was actually pleasantly surprised because I had forgotten, I guess, when we talked about um, taking a look at it, um, whether or not it was actually a hardcore film. So it was nice to see that it wasn't a hardcore film. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it was seeing two terrific actors, uh, Jane Hamilton and Ginger Lynn, in non-porn roles, just acting. And that was really a nice, a nice treat for me. I enjoyed that, and I, I thought that the film itself was done very well. Chuck Vincent was always at the top of his game. A lot of realism, you know, brought brought to the, the script and the cinematography by Larry Ravine was, was I thought, very compelling. And I liked the music score, too. And I liked the little twists and turns in the plot. Um, there was more to it than just, you know, doing sort of the crossover from male to female. There, you know, the, there was sort of d- different different elements of redemption in the movie. How about you, Rob? I had not seen this until um, you brought it up for the show. I think I watched half of it maybe, I don't know, six months or so ago when you first sent it to me because you're like, hey, we're going to do this on the show. So I started to watch it, but I didn't get that far into it. And then I watched it in earnest about a week ago. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it's really well done. And I agree, I have to agree with Jill. It's nice to see these actors who you're used to seeing in hardcore 
really put in great performances. And the thing that was nice to me is that although at times the um, some of the sets, like the the office and the and the one apartment set, looks like obvious sets and has a, you know sort of a late night cable uh, quality on the production, I think overall it's really well shot. It's really well done. I, I'm actually kind of amazed that more people don't know about this one. I saw this one a few months ago. I can't remember who turned us on to this one. If this was something that Jane Hamilton had talked about when we spoke to her or how this kind of got on the radar, um, maybe talking to Larry Ravine, whatever. But um, yeah, I was really glad to be able to see this. It might have actually been part of an article that I ran in Cashiers to Cinemart about Chuck Vincent films. So there's so many different ways to have gotten to this film, and it just took me so long to finally watch it. And once I did, which was probably uh, maybe six months ago, yeah, really blew my socks off, and I was so glad that uh, I saw this movie. And it's kind of a age-old tale. I mean, looking through kind of the history of you know gender-swapping kind of stuff, I mean, we are all familiar... Um, uh, with the spate of body swap comedies that have happened over the years, especially the big three from the 80s, you know, 18 again, vice versa, and like Father Like Son, something was in the water in the 80s that made that happen. But also, you know, things like Freaky Friday and the Freaky Friday remake, and there have just been so many of these body swap comedies over the years. But this one kind of is a special... There's a special place for this type of film or type of story where we have one character who switches identity completely but without anybody else. They just go from male to female or female to male you know, overnight pretty much or within uh, just a span of a few minutes. And I, of course, love the way that that then suddenly plays with gender politics. And there was... Uh, a version of the story back in the 50s. There has been uh, a version of it in the 70s that we'll talk about. There's a version in the late 80s with Cleo Leo. And then just a few years after that, there's basically the same story with a movie called Switch. And we'll definitely be talking about all of those as this conversation goes on. But with Cleo Leo, you're right. It was beautiful seeing you know so many people when they think about adult film actors, they just think, oh whatever there's no skill there's no performance how hard is it to suck a dick or fuck a girl or any of that kind of stuff seeing jane hamilton seeing scott bakers everybody in this movie is at the top of their game and it was so nice to see yeah there's some cheesy sets and everything and sometimes some of the lines are some groaners and everything but i have to say i was really impressed with the performances and just the way this whole film comes together I was really pleasantly surprised because, like you said, it, 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 it you know, it kind of, it, it did surprise me. It, it sort of, um, just like when I was talking earlier about the twist, I mean, I thought it was really interesting how, you know, when Cleo took the stage and then she was gone again and Leo returned, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was how, he was transformed, and I thought Scott Baker, I am not familiar with him, I thought he did a magnificent job as the renewed, if you will, or the, rest- or the um, revamped, um, regenerated sort of version of himself, of, the, of the, the new Leo. I thought that was so touching and very genuine. 
I thought, wow, that was one of the finest moments of the film for me was when he came back as the as the restored Leo, the, the softer Leo, the more sensitive Leo. And so things like that, I, I thought this, yeah, it's like you say, Mike, I think everybody needs to see this. It's and, and and I know we're going to talk about it later, but I thought so much more compelling and so much more um, authentic than Switch. The movie, I have to say, when it starts off, everything, well, pretty much everything throughout the movie is very exaggerated. And sometimes it borders a little bit on cartoonish, especially the way that we have some of these performances as far as like the way that these men, we start off in this male world, Leo... Blockman is the boss at this place. He's got his nephew there, who's kind of his right-hand man. And they take every opportunity to exploit women whenever possible. Like, his nephew is grabbing this woman's ass. Like, as she's walking by, she's almost out of the frame. And he has to stop and, like, almost go after her a little bit to grab her ass. And then there's these tryouts for being a secretary to Leo, Oh, jeez. See, but to me, the fact that it is that kind of cartoony isn't necessarily a bad thing. Because no. I'm reminded of, and I've brought it up on the show several times, and we have done an episode on it, of something like Watermelon Man. Where you have the character who is so sort of blown out and over the top in the beginning, and then when the turn happens, then that's when you get the real sort of everything has been sort of put on its head that everything has changed. And that's that's what kind of works for me, is it does blow it up and make it a satire. Because to me, the one thing I saw in here was not only just a satire of sort of, you know, social norms and sort of men, women dealing in, in all of that, but really also 1980s business culture. Because there's so much mm-hmm. stuff in here about corporate takeovers and Wall Street mm-hmm. and, you know, buyouts and all of that stuff that it's almost like someone took a you know um a, a satire of interpersonal relationships between men and women and then also wanted to satirize wall street at the same time i mean we forget what it was like you know in an earlier age after we've gone through i mean just last week at work i sat through like this two-hour talk about sexual harassment and sensitivity training and all this kind of stuff and that is pretty much the norm you know i've had multiple classes on it whether it's online or off but you know you are constantly being drilled do not treat people differently this is a horrible thing to do you know to the point where there's questions about like when is it appropriate to comment on someone's outfit can you tell someone that they have a nice outfit on so i mean we have gone so far in the other direction it is just hilarious now jill did you ever work in kind of a corporate environment at any point? And, you know, being a woman, how have you been treated in your jobs in the past? Well, I, I've worked not in a corporate environment, but I've worked in, in various offices. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I never experienced what the women in in uh, Cleo Leo experience. But I mean, maybe I just wasn't subjected to that. Maybe I wasn't in a, in a large enough sort of setting for those kinds of things to happen because they, of course they, of course they happen. And as, as we mentioned, these things were extreme in the film. On the other hand, 
I never felt that I could not, I never felt I was competing against men. I opened up my own business in 1986, a hearing instrument clinic, and I was 28 years old, and I never thought I couldn't do it. So I, I know this is maybe going off on a bit of a tangent, but it isn't really, because this was in 86. This was three years before the film was made, and I just, you know, I just never really felt that there was sort of these gender differences and that these rules that needed to be adhered to. You know what I mean? I just felt that I could always kind of do my own thing as a female. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think it it, it does in in many ways. You're also from Canada, so. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but there are many similarities between the countries. We're sort of the sister. Yeah, there are. I know. I'm just. I'm just playing. <laughs> Spend some time up. We have many restrictions when you talk about in the workplace. You know all the education about you know how to treat others in the work. Yeah, I mean that 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 is like full bore here too. But I don't know. I don't know if if my being having grown up in Canada is you know set the tone for me to be able to do that. At that time, I don't know. I don't really think so. I was just joking because the mm. the old adage down here is that the Canadians are really nice and we're just boorish people down here in America. So. <laughs> Not true. Not true. As we're talking about this, I'm thinking about one of my coworkers from my last job. Actually, she was uh, ended up being my boss at one point, and she was telling this story. This was probably mid-80s, early 80s, because she had worked at this place for uh, – going on 30, maybe 35, 40 years. I mean, these people, they stick around at this particular place. And she was talking about how she had a coworker who basically was a stalker and uh, like was like doing horrible things to things on her desk and like leaving bodily fluids around and all this kind of stuff. He ended up not being fired. He was just moved to a different office. And that just has to make you feel terrible that somebody can do this and get away with it. And it's basically, it wasn't necessarily 100% sanctioned, but if a guy isn't fired, I mean, I think that's kind of implicit approval of this stuff. It's just like, yeah, this how terrible that is to feel kind of threatened at the workplace by your own coworkers. Yeah, the place that you have to go every single day. You know, you can't get away from it. Yeah, and it's it's like with anything else. A few bad apples spoil the the whole bunch and so then they have to impose these sanctions to to protect the innocent because there's these jerks around and unfortunately sexual harassment at work I'm sure it still happens. It probably is happening right now as we're recording this, but definitely it's not as accepted by society as it is in this film. Of course, like we said, this is an exaggeration, but even just watching you know, old TV shows and old movies and things, it's just like, wow, you sure couldn't get away with that joke now. They call me the ratings machine. She gets out and she starts asking me all sorts of ridiculous questions and... You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. So we start off with this world of men, and yeah, it's just terrible. And at one point, uh, Leo goes on a date with one of his, with his uh, his choice for a secretary, and it is just it's awful. Talking about uh, having a, a great dinner, and he basically opens up a package of meat, throws it at this woman. Nice place you have here. 
You know, I'm kind of hungry. Hmm. Great idea. Great. You know, I am starved myself. Good luck. I got us two steaks. Yeah, the kitchen's back there. I uh, like mine rare. But I gotta say, because it's shortly thereafter that Leo is out. He's going to a poker game because this date just doesn't work out. He's going to go to the the fellas' poker game, you know, kind of odd couple-ish here. And he's out on the street, and he makes an advancement towards this woman, and she just goes ballistic. Are we supposed to know this woman, or is she just a random person that he runs into out on the street? I was getting this sort of like Miss 45 vibe or something that she's, you know, and and maybe not even that. I I have no idea because I can't figure out why she would gun him down. Every day, on every street, in every city, women are insulted, abused. The only thing I got was that she was just a crazy person, and maybe she had been abused at some point. I have no idea. I thought that, too. I thought this woman's just at the end of her rope, and he just happens to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and said the wrong thing to her, of course. It just triggered that whole onslaught of violence. (laughs) It was crazy. Hey, baby! Hey, what are you doing for the rest of your life? You want to sit on my face? I'm dead. Dyke. Pig. Slut. Oh, make up your mind. Am I a dyke or a slut? I have it. You're a slutty dyke. Oh, that's very clever. Yeah, you're also a castrator. A castrator? Yeah. Is that so? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, then, let's see if you can function without any balls. Oh, come on, bitch. Who are you trying to fool with that toy gun? Fuck! No. No, that was weird. And then, of course, she resurfaces at the end of the movie to, you know, finish off the job that she thought she'd, you know, finished off in the first place, which was bizarre, too. With a vendetta. My God. Maybe she's like a negative fairy godmother, you know what I mean? Like, she only shows up to kind of anti-bestow things on you. Yeah, it's almost like she was a devil or angel from the, the, the switch. I mean, it was like she represented some sort of different entity that was intervening with Leo's life. But, I mean, it didn't state that, but looking back on it, maybe, I don't know. It was just very strange. So she takes Leo out and shoots him, and he goes over this uh, railing into the water, into what I can uh, only assume is pretty dangerous water there in New York. And when he comes out, he has been transformed, and now he is Cleo, though he doesn't have a name right away. He has to get a name later on. You know, I got to say, if I could be transformed into Jane Hamilton circa 1989, (laughs) no complaints. That's all I got to say. I don't think I'd leave the house. (laughs) Yeah, she looks fabulous. Oh, she's gorgeous in this film. And just given this performance that I was just blown away by, she was fantastic. Because she's now portraying a man, portraying this sexist, horrible pig of a man. And again... We can go a little bit too extreme as far as the way that she walks and the way she carries herself, but I think it's perfect. It is right in tone with this film. Everything is pitch perfect as far as this goes. And her going over to this poker party, and that's where she makes her discovery that she is now a woman. And these guys, 
just the biggest group of rapey guys that you could get into one apartment. Oh, guys, it's Leo's last request. We got to do it for him. Yeah. Oh, these guys are real retards. Do what? Hey, <laughs> I don't know how to explain this to you guys, but I, I don't like men. That's all right, baby. We don't like men either. Stupid assholes. Oh, boy, am I in deep shit. Oh, whoa. What? Slow down. What do we do? I thought you liked us. Come on. Yeah, well, maybe you'll like this. Yeah. Come on, you're crazy. And it just shows us that the stakes are so high in this film already. Just thinking about that scene and how how excellent Jane was and just her making this, she just plops herself down in the chair and she's, you know, doesn't understand that anything's different at all. And the guys are just like, you know, Pavlov's dogs, like just, you know, it's like they'd never seen a woman before or something. That that was another part that I thought was really over the top, but funny, but not funny in a ha-ha way, but yeah, the irony in that was just very striking, I thought. But yeah, when she discovered that she was a female and let out that scream again i thought wow she was just incredible throughout just incredible so we've got her discovering that she's a man we have scott baker still there he's in our ear the whole time kind of narrating everything that's going on their timing together was fantastic and just the way that he's commenting on everything and the way that we hear him change too, as we go through, you know, now Cleo's story. And I love that Cleo now, not only does she learn what a horrible world it is for women, but also she and Leo get to learn how horrible (laughs) his nephew is and just how quickly Everything turns against what, you know, his empire is being dismantled immediately. And the nephew is there, like, he uses a lawyer to to swindle the will so that Leo's ex-wife and son don't get anything. He changes the name of the company almost immediately. Now it's like he's just a pig in slop when it comes to, like, okay, now let's get these girls in here and I'm going to get massages in my office and all this kind of stuff. And it's probably the same thing that Leo was doing, it, doing, but he's just, you know, doing it a little bit more. And I think that little bit more and also seeing it from this woman's perspective are really turning Leo's stomach. But again, he sees really nothing wrong with so much of it. When he first becomes Cleo, he, you know, is right there when it comes to, you know, he's still talking about broads and, you know, lusting after this, you know, the girl who's trying to sell him a dress and all this kind of stuff. And it takes him a while before he starts to realize how crude the language is that's being used around him and all this. And also the friendship between the Cleo character and the uh, Ginger Lynn character just fantastic i love the way that really ginger lynn is there as like the voice of reason and really kind of informs cleo as to how things really are but it's interesting because when karen or ginger as karen is first introduced she's sort of going along with towing the line and she's sort of going along with the office politics but it's really cleo who enlightens her you know more toward the end of the film i guess when when ginger's character sort of stands up for herself and tells you know, tells Marvin to address her appropriately and not to 
call her, you know, whatever, you know, name, you know, sexist name. And I thought that was interesting, too, how Cleo's presence helped to transform sort of the office and not maybe the whole office environment, but starting with Ginger's character. Hi, Tits. Who gets the two pizzas with the works? Hey, kitty. Hey, who's the new fuzz? Fuzz. Never mind. In here. Yeah, Ginger was so sweet. She's she's so natural. Ginger, I think, is a very natural actor. And so when I'm watching her, and Jane, too, of course, I'm not thinking that I'm watching actors. I'm thinking I'm watching very believable, natural performances, both of them. The two of them. And the two of them together, again, their chemistry on screen, it's just fantastic. And Ginger is so sweet, taking in this new person who doesn't necessarily have a mm-hmm. home. and Letting her share her bed. Oh, yeah. And the woman at the store was so nice to her by giving her a line of credit after, you know, uh, her quote-unquote ex-boyfriend, ex-husband, or, you know, the, the abusive person, a.k.a. Leo, which is funny that he's, you know, seen as the abuser in that scene after she has to cut up his card and everything. And it's nice that there's this kind of solidarity between these female characters in here. I'm sure that's not necessarily 100% true to life, but it was nice to see that women sticking together in this particular story. Well, the comment was made there that this wouldn't have happened if a man had gone into a store and had his credit card cut up, you know? He wouldn't have been extended that same credit. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but I thought at that time, probably for sure. We have this kind of Leo coming around to things, and the character Bob that gets introduced fairly early on, Bob is the only nice guy in this entire movie. Every other man that we see is leering at her, making rude remarks to her. You know, there's I don't know what the budget for construction hats was on this film, probably pretty low. I think they just reused the same two or three construction hats, but every construction worker is out there just leering and making horrible comments and just I, the the thing that really gets me is there's the one scene where it is Cleo and Karen walking down the street and there's the two construction workers and they just start in on them. And Cleo is just like, well, if you're so proud of your dick, why don't you take it out? I love that. (laughs) Immediately she goes from being a bitch to being a, uh, what a drag queen and just the way, you know, there's no winning. Yeah. She is. She a dyke. Is she a drag queen? And it's all just like you are, obviously not normal because you're not responding to me the right way. And there's, you know, there, I don't know what the right way to respond to these cat calls and horrible insinuations are, but you know, she, by standing up, she is not in the norm for these two characters and just, yeah, that scene is fantastic. And then the whole idea of her now, like uh, there's that transformation with her as well, as far as, Bob and Bob being nice to her and because she starts out very hetero, you know, you're sleeping with Ginger Lynn and she's got a lot of feelings about that. But the way that she starts to move into being okay with that. And then I was really surprised, even though I had seen this movie before, I was actually surprised when about an hour and five minutes into the film, Leo's voice starts to fade away and it really fades away right when she finally gets her first kiss from Bob. And that next like 10 minutes of film is probably some of the sweetest stuff I've ever seen. The lovemaking scene I agree. I thought that was beautifully shot, beautifully done, so sweet. And uh, the whole time, 
Cleo is, is sort of speaking because her voice now is Cleo and or, or Jane's and, and sort of giving commentary almost about what's going on and how much she's enjoying it and she's fighting it, but she's not going to fight it. And I thought that was really, really well done. And I watched it and I thought, I prefer this almost to actually seeing a hardcore scene because it was so moving. It was so sweet, and to hear her reaction as this is going on, and her transformation as she's, and she realizes that she's probably a virgin in this body, and what is he going to think about that? Oh God, this can't be happening. I like it. Ooh, ooh, oh, I like him kissing me. Ooh, yeah. Oh. Oh, I like his body against mine. Oh, my God, I can't believe I'm being passive. I mean, for the first time in my life, I'm letting someone else take charge. Ooh. And I'm letting him get away with it. Ooh. And it's great. Oh, God, it's just great. Were you okay, though, with the part where she's talking about how he's taking charge and she's not used to that and how almost she doesn't use the word submissive, but she uses another word in place. And I'm trying to remember what that what that was, but it was that she was letting him be in charge of the situation. If there's one thing that's standard about the quote unquote gender roles in here to a certain extent, that seems to be one of them. That to a certain extent, it wants to play in this field of men are in charge, women are submissive to a certain extent. But at the same time, I would say outside of the bedroom scene for the Cleo character, she's very take charge with the aspects of her trying to do this like leverage buyout of the company. Were you all right with that one, Jill? I actually was. It's funny that you mentioned it because when I was watching it, I was thinking about that very thing. But I think, for me, Leo, it was so nice. Leo, as Leo, he was so used to being in charge everywhere, at the office, in his social life, in the bedroom. So I think it was a nice switch for him, a nice change for him to be able to be sort of on the receiving end and not, and sort of to let to let go you know that's how I looked at it as because he was experiencing that for the first time as a woman and you know it doesn't mean that when Cleo and Bob have you know future future romantic scenes together it would always be that way but I think for that time I just looked at it as it represented the very first time that Leo got to sort of you know let himself off the hook I looked at it that way, and I thought it was, it was probably almost liberating for him because he was probably so he was always so used to having to be the quote unquote man in every situation. Yeah, I can't imagine having sex with Leo when he was in his male form, because he must have just been the most selfish lover <laughs> around. I love too that that scene ends with her admission to herself that she's in love. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. this must be what love is like. And you can tell that he had never been in love. And she is finally, for the first time, experiencing love in so many senses of the word. But now, you know, as Cleo, he is able to. And this is Jane's voice now. This is the, the Cleo voice. She has taken over. And he has gone away. And I, this, to me, is some of my favorite part, where it is now fully 
Cleo and she's basically starting to get her life together and being good with all this. And then the roof falls in. This is, you know, the nephew has put a, a mobster on the trail of who can this be who's trying to steal the company out from under him. And I'm actually okay with uh, her being kind of an embezzler. Uh, she's basically smarter than the nephew is and uses her smarts to undermine him and take control back of the company. But unfortunately, he has put this uh, killer out there and the killer takes her out. Now we have the return of Leo uh, Scott Baker. Yeah. As you said, his bravura performance here as the changed Leo, you know, and I love that they have that kind of echo too. It's like basically the, the exact same spot. They probably just set up the camera once for the fall over the, the railing and everything, but him coming up with the big, earrings and the white coat and the high heels and all this very comical comical but but not 100 percent burlesque no 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 and he's so sincere in his performance it's not like he is you know just like this screaming mimi or something he is he's embraced that feminine in this particular area of the film so much that it's a little much at first but when he comes in and he sees bob there Again, one of the most tender scenes. But unfortunately, things are not to last because that's when our good friend Valerie Solanas comes back. And this is because this was why I thought maybe she had some sort of personal connection with Leo was because she knows where he lives. She breaks into his house. (laughs) She's there with her gun behind the door, which is a very popular hiding spot in this movie, and starts calling, like, here, piggy, 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 to him. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would have gone to investigate if I heard that. I probably would have gotten out of the apartment and called the cops, but then you don't have a movie here. I don't know if it was he really said, but it was like he was wrestling with sort of who he wanted to be because, as you said, he had experienced love for the first time as as Cleo. And it was almost like, you know, not that he, he gave in to his fate, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the worst thing that could happen at that point. You know, it, it was... It was kind of interesting how he walked into that. I mean, it was his apartment and everything, but it was like he knew, I'm sure, what was going to happen there, almost. And and so, you know, of course, he got to he got to die again and and come back. Fortunately, he came back. He didn't go in the water, but he managed to come back one more time, which always leads me to wonder if he's now like an immortal, and so every time he gets killed, he'll just come back as a different gender. <laughs> But I think I'm probably putting way too much thought into that one. The Highlander, you got to cut his head off. What you're saying? Yeah, exactly. You cut cut either Cleo's or Leo's head off. Otherwise, they'll keep coming back. There can be only one. It was interesting though when they showed the memorial service the second time around because, of course, the first one was in the in the warehouse, and you know people didn't. You know, it was it was just a facade, really. The second time, people were genuinely you know, emotional about Leo's loss. Just, I think he'd made just a very small impact when he, when he had come back as Leo, the good guy, you know, he went and took flowers to his wife, saw his little, his ex-wife saw his little boy. I mean, he did a couple of things to kind of restore or, you know, kind of make, make things right, kind of reestablish balance there in the universe. Yeah. He was Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning when he came back. 
Hello, you there, boy. Me, sir? Yes, you, my good fellow. What day is today? Today? Why, it's Christmas Day, of course. But it was funny how the, there was already another man that had, I don't know whether he'd moved into the apartment, but then I thought, okay, well, they're, they're divorced, so I guess. You know, it was like they, they had believed that he was dead, yet here he is. He's come back. He's bringing flowers, and the, and the little boy didn't even come at the door to speak to him, which I thought was one little peculiar thing. But Yeah, I think he was probably such a stranger to his son. Yeah. I don't know if he was he was at the age where he would know what death is, but right. yeah, he was definitely having a much better time with his new dad yeah. than his old dad. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. We restore it's interesting that we have restored the balance to the movie by going back to Cleo. She is really the heart of this film. You know, you can, because we've got Leo, Cleo, Leo, and then Cleo at the end. You would think like the balance would be for Leo to come back and have said, whew, I learned my lesson, and then turn off the lights and that's it. But no, really, the love that Cleo had for Bob is what sets everything right at the end. And now, you know, the nephew has been ousted. We've got Karen is still there. She's going to get married. I mean, everything is right at the end. And I I thought that was fantastic. Well, I mean, for me, you know, uh, calling up the parallel of satire again with Watermelon Man, it ends with, uh, spoiler, um, him maintaining his, his situation as opposed to turning back to what he was. So, so I, I think that actually works within the parameters of a satire because it shows that you can't go back, that once you have this knowledge, once you've learned, mm. you really can't go back because if mm. you did, you would, it, I don't know, it just doesn't work in that way. I don't, I don't think it's as satisfying of an ending. You don't think it's satisfying if he had stayed Leo? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, I I think really what it becomes is that old sort of visage of that character, what they were, how they related to the world. Even if they had all this knowledge, even if they had all this education, there's still the possibility, I think, in the mind of the audience that, well, just give him a couple of weeks and he'll revert back to his old self. At least in this situation, there mm. is no reverting back to your old self. You are now in this other situation. You've learned everything you've needed to learn by being both and also having the epiphany of the other. And now you're forced to live in this new this new way. And good luck to you. The thing I thought was interesting, too, is for me, I thought, okay, so it sort of begs the question at the end, what is more desirable to live life as a man or live life as a woman. And I think the way that they portrayed the male as men were portrayed in the movie as being pigs, chauvinists, misogynists. Women are being, were portrayed as wise, smarter, um, more sensitive, more thoughtful, which isn't really realistic either because that's not the way that it works in reality. But I, so I thought that was interesting. Just, you know, I asked myself at the end, okay, so what, what is the most desirable sex to be? Sort of just based on, like, within the parameters of the film. So you would vote neither, that everyone is open <laughs> to being uh, stupid? Well, and I everyone... love the way that women were portrayed in the film, but I don't know if it was necessarily accurate either. You know what I mean? It was Jane as Cleo was, was lovely. And it would be nice to think that every woman was really that way. She was smart. She was able to, to you know, uh, 
win back the uh, or, or be diabolical enough to to get the company back and and all of those things and and she fell in love and and she established you know close friendship but i i don't know i just wonder if if that if you know it's not really reality i guess it is a film and it's entertainment but it did make you sort of you know ask questions those so kinds this- of questions so this is, um, you know how we talked about before, Mike, and this has been a trope in film uh, for decades, the magical Negro, in which the, the, the underclass person comes in to teach the white person of privilege that they're on the wrong path and gets them on the right path. So, so in a way, it's almost like you see that they've done that, but with a different gender, where it's like, oh, well, mm-hmm. of course, you know, the, the, the woman will be wise and teach you the path of right. true humanity, which is, right. which is another nonsense Which isn't trope. true. <laughs> well, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it works both ways. Men and women are, everything we saw in the movie, I think both sexes have the possibility to have all, we all have all those shades within us, I think. You know, some people have them more prevalent than others, certain sort of elements of of these characteristics that were shown in the film. But not everybody is sort of purely one way or purely the other way. And I think it, I think that that is how the the women and, and men were portrayed in, in the movie, that one extreme or the other. But I think something closer to the middle for both sides would, would be more more realistic. For me, it's not even about the the gender at this point. It's that she's loved or is in love when she's this one person. Whether she was Leo or Cleo, for me, it's kind of she's able to love and be loved as this one character. And that's kind of, for me, what makes everything right at the end of the film, Whether, regardless of whether she's in a man's body or a woman's body at that point. I mean, she has set things aright with that second appearance of Leo. We have seen him redeemed and everything. And it, I would have been fine having it end with him. I was happier having it end with her just because she was in love and she did have Bob at the end because at that point when it was Cleo coming back and having Bob, Bob doesn't roll that way and that's absolutely fine. You know, he's, he's playing for one team and, and at that point, I don't know if Leo would have played for the other team or not, but Hey, you know, it was good that we kind of set it back so that the two people that were in love were in love. It was a love story, and I think that's really what it ended up being after, you know, in the conclusion. And I, I like the way that it ended, too. I like it that she came back, and it was a very sweet ending. Well, maybe it is that sort of, um, you know, Velveteen Rabbit slash uh, old, uh, what is it, uh, Dean Martin tune. You know, you're nobody till somebody loves you. There you go, right? Mm. Is that is that your motto? Is that is that what you're going for on this one, Mike? Sure. All right, so let's go ahead. We're going to take a break here. We've got a couple of interviews. The first is with cinematographer Larry Ravine, and the second is with actor Scott Baker. We'll play those after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. 
Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Scientists, newsmakers, policy changers, advocates, and more. Join me, international award-winning journalist Michael Howie, as I interview those in the know on wildlife issues and advocacy around the world on Defender Radio. Posted every Monday on the iTunes Store and at FurBearDefenders.com. Listen to Defender Radio, and you too can stay informed and stay strong. Presented by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. Welcome to the Wheelbarrow Full of Dicks Internet Radio Program. The first podcast transmitted via the FaxCast Fax Machine Transmission Service. Have podcasts streamed directly to your fax machine. Visit us on the web at faxcasts.com or dial toll-free 1-800-FAXCAST. When was the first time that you and Chuck Vincent worked together? The first time that we worked together, I was on a picture called Misbehaving. And I was the camera assistant on that. Arthur Marks was the DP. And then I shot, the next time I worked with Chuck, I shot uh, Jack and Jill. That's the first time that I was a DP with him, and that was probably about 1979, 78, 79 in the neighborhood. Now, is that the same Arthur Marks that would go on to do, like, um, Linda Lovelace for president and a lot of other things? Probably. He shot a lot of films around New York, uh, so it's, prob- it's probably Arthur, yes. So what was your working relationship like with Chuck Vincent? I never met anyone quite like Chuck, and I just have to say that our working relationship was great. He and I had a certain simpatico in terms of getting the scripts done. Uh, I knew, I knew, like every script, I knew the script number, uh, the scene number, while we were shooting, and. Chuck liked the fact that I always knew what was going to be the next situation, the next setup, whatever. I liked the way Chuck worked because he was no nonsense. And, uh, you know, after every every scene, uh, he the first thing he would say is next setup. And that, that appealed to me rather than, um, you know, wasting a lot of my time. And when it comes to Cleo Leo, this is 1989, I think it came out, so shooting probably in 88, early 89. Yes. What one was that one like? 
Well, um, to tell you the truth, Mike, that was uh, in a series of films that we did um, mostly for Vestron, who were the uh, new kids on the block. Uh, they were making TNA films for cable consumption. And we did, uh, I don't know, over between 87 to 89, we probably did about 10 films. So in terms of working on it, it was another situation much like any of the other films that we were doing during that period. And uh, we shot it at Chuck's studio, which we did a lot of um, the shooting there. That's mainly um, my my recollection of, of that picture. I don't have a whole lot of specifics, um, memories about it because, like I said, it was sort of um, standard fare in terms of what we were doing at the time. Yeah, it's amazing looking at your CV and just seeing like, you know, oh, well, 1989, um, you shot six, seven films. It's just like... You must have been working all the time. I was. I was working not only with Chuck, but with other people, too. So it was a very, very busy period. Uh, and that all came to a screeching halt in uh, 1990 when um, all of the producers came back from MIFID and said, it's over, we can't do this anymore. The cable market was glutted with the, I mean, they were buying everything and they all, all of a sudden were demanding that, um, they have box office names and, uh, the budgets that we were doing those films on, um, you know, we're talking maybe 250,000 or so and shooting them in, um, eight or nine days just wouldn't support the, the money for major stars. You know, when people say a million-dollar picture, the crew and most of the talent and support people don't get anything more than what they normally get on a on a picture. So it was just impossible for Chuck and the other people to survive after that shift in the paradigm for the cable market. A lot of your early work was in adult films, and when was that kind of shift to more of like the softcore cable type stuff? We had been doing the TNA films all along. That started back with my first experiences with Chuck uh, after we did um, after, after I did Jack and Jill with Chuck. We did, uh, I believe it was Preppies are Hot T-shirt contest. Those were standard fare. Chuck did as as many and maybe more than the X-rated films. The paradigm shift came exactly in 1990 in MIFED, whenever that, I think that's in May. I might be wrong about that. But uh, Chuck came back and several other producers there, and they all said, uh, that's it, it's over, we can't, we can't compete anymore. Just as an aside, Chuck was sort of had knowledge of this this change coming up. I mean, you know, it wasn't a secret in the industry. So he he hired uh, Linda Blair in a couple of films, and when he took him to to Meaford, hoping to you know get in on the 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 bigger distribution deals and so forth, 
Linda Blair had been working, had been uh, living in a hotel in different hotels and working on lots of films. So everybody at Mefit that year had a Linda Blair film. So it was it sort of negated that whole concept. You know, he used people like Tab Hunter, you know, uh, Wings Hauser. You know, these were people that he was trying to stay afloat with their names for the box office, but none of them, you know, really had any great appeal. Wings and and um, Tab uh, had, you know, they had sort of lived out their their box office appeal. Yeah, I was very surprised, like looking at some of the late '80s films that you're doing, because there's a lot of R-rated stuff. It's not necessarily adult stuff. It's not crossing into that X. Were there like two versions being filmed, or was it just more of a shift into this is cable friendly? Yes, uh, exactly. It was it was for cable, and um, you know the the situation in New York had changed in terms of the adult films. Most of those were being made out on the West Coast, and with the advent in the mid-'80s of um, you know, the popularity of the um, of videotape, they were, you know, it kind of reverted back to just uh, loops again. So the future was really in the cable market for those made-for-cable films. But I have to say, it was really nice seeing something like a Cleo Leo where... I think almost everybody that's in the film seemed to have a adult past, but they're playing it in an R-rated film and playing it really well, especially compared to something like Switch, which comes out two years later. Right. Almost the same story, yeah. but for me, it's better acted by somebody like a Jane Hamilton. I couldn't agree with you more. Chuck, you see, it's a long story, but Chuck had his problems with SAG actors, and with SAG, when we did preppies, uh, one of the underlings, um, the Chuck didn't check the negotiation with SAG, and we wound up making a $250,000 film, Preppies, and the person that, that negotiated with SAG made a big mistake, and Chuck owed, at the end of it, owed SAG $100,000. So he was not crazy uh, about dealing with SAG actors, and quite frankly, a lot of them, to be in SAG, all you had to do was be in one picture. So a lot of them didn't have the the screen craft chops to to be able to know all of the intricacies of um, the filming. The X-rated people like Jane Hamilton, Jamie Gillis, a number of the people... They were they had been honed in the, in all of the screen crafts, so they were actually much much better. You know, Scott Baker had had done like a lot of a lot of stuff. Although he sag, he was one of the rare people that had any kind of chops at all, as far as like knowing his screen craft. So Chuck opted to go more and more with. Although he suffered suffered the consequences, people saying, oh, well, he uses all these X-rated people. fact was, he knew them, he knew their ranges, and he also knew that he could get, you know, what, what, what kind of performance he could get from them 
as a guarantee, and he could write around them also. Otherwise, he was writing scripts for people that he would have to cast and hope that the square peg fit in the round hole, so to speak. So uh, that's why he used the X-rated people um, because he had been working with them for years, all those people, and they they had honed their craft. You know, you worked with Chuck for a lot of his films. He worked with the same actors for a lot of these films. What was that kind of community like working with just this kind of core group for so many of these movies? Well, I think there's a long tradition, Mike, uh, of people doing that, Tessavetes and in in that ilk of people, Woody Allen, Certain people that you know you can depend on. It's terrible to write a script, have some concept in mind, and then just not be able to get the actors with the tools at their disposal to pull that off. So working with the group was always, uh, you know, there were always familiar faces, and it was uh, more of a a company of actors and technicians working together together to do that. And frankly, a lot of the times when we'd bring in somebody new from SAG or, or some unknown uh, uh, commodity, then there would be surprises. There would be these uh, very bizarre things happen. One of the, one of the standard things, for instance, is that if you had, if we were doing like a, um, a film like wet t-shirts or something, uh, you know, cheerleaders or whatever, there would be SAG actors that would sign up to do the topless uh, partial nudity. And when it came time to actually do it, they would hide behind each other. They would say they weren't going to do it. We had a terrible time with that. And then also um, with the male actors, so often you'd get somebody who seemed fine, you know, and then use them on one film or two films, and they would be very unpredictable in terms of their ability to work professionally. Who were some of your favorites to work with on some of these films? Well, I, I have to say that Jane Hamilton is top of the list. Uh, she she was the absolute most professional person uh, Jennifer Delora, who um, was in a number of films, some of the names escaped me, but, you know, even people like Jerry Butler, I mean, he had terrific acting chops. And Jamie Gillis, you know, these were people that were had been schooled in the film traditions, and so they really knew their stuff. They were able to really perform, not just... Not just get the lines right, you know. Last time we had you on the show, you were talking about writing your memoirs. How's that going? Oh, it's going well. Thanks, Mike. Um, I have two books out now, the three-book series, and they're doing well. Surprisingly, I'm, I'm the most surprised of all that, that they have actually been had a positive reception from the um, the public, and it, it, it amazes me that, um, you know, they're still going strong after the first one was about two years ago. The second one I just uh, released, uh, published about, I don't know, about six or eight months ago, and that has been selling even though I haven't really done the marketing. I mean, that's the caveat with the with the self-publishing is that you really have to 
do the marketing, you know, have to be attentive to that. But even without, you know, pushing the merch, so to speak, I have been able to constantly sell books. I get those returns every month. So number three is in the works. It's been written. I just have to have an editor work it over and put together some photos and that sort of thing. So it'll be a three-part. That was the plan. And I'm happy with it because I really never really saw myself as being an author or publishing or anything. But with, you know, this new um, age that we live in, the self-publishing thing, it's it's really great. I I can't speak more highly of it because I think it's the best. It's really the best of, uh, of things going on right now. Where's the best place for folks to pick those up? Amazon is um, uh, the two books are, are there. You can either see their ebook or, or paper. They're paper copies, and um, you know you just uh, write in Larry Ravine, and uh, it pops up. What have you been working on lately? I'm kind of going forward in all directions at once here. I have a series of paintings of that I've done over the last four or five years of influential women, which I'm trying to get a um, a one-man show, if I can find one man. That is something that has been ongoing for some time. The second book, like I said, was released back uh, several months ago, and the third book, I have to work on that. Um, I have two films that I'm finishing now. I'm sitting at the editing console at this, at this very moment trying to get these films finished. And um, I'm also doing a project with Gerard Damiano Jr., who is trying to uh, round up all of the the orphan films that his father did that, that there's a lot of disputes about who owns it and so forth. And so we've been going around. I, I got back last last weekend from, we drove cross country uh, and then from LA up to Portland, Oregon and made stops along the way. And we interviewed uh, Sharon Mitchell and Georgina Spelvin and Annie Sprinkle and, of course, Ron Jeremy. And, Ron, we ran out of batteries and, and card space with Ron. <laughs> he, was just, he was just, you know, just turning loose. He's playing harmonica during his, his interviews these days, too. So I've known Ron since he first got in the business. As a matter of fact, he was in one of my first films and his first films, um, so Sizzle. So we go way back. So it's good to see Ron. Anyway, we saw a lot of people. We also saw, we also finally got the um, unique interview with uh, Joao Fernandez, who is Harry Fleck, who has never done interviews, but now that he's retired, he is doing interviews. He shot Deep Throat, and he is uh, he shot several films with uh, Jared Damiano. So we're we're coming back to New York to do interviews here, and then we're going back out to the coast again to get a few people that we miss. So that's that's kind of an ongoing project, and the two films that I'm trying to finish now 
have been in the works for long, much too long a time. But I'm getting, I'm getting very close. I'm, I'm threatening to finish them. Now I know. Just last year, Distropix put out Wanda Whips Wall Street, and I think there was even wasn't there a screening at the Anthology Film Archives for that too. There was, there was, Mike. I'm sorry you couldn't be there. That's exactly the kind of thing you would love. I know. Um, but it, it, the screening went well, and it's it's amazing. You know, I mean, it's kind of apropos that a film about Wall Street should be still paying dividends after 30 years. You know, it has been uh, for districts. It's been a uh, a money maker all along. They've, every year, they they make a profit off that film. Yeah, I'm happy that that that's you know that that worked out that way. Are there any of your other films you know that are being restored or anything? Distropix, uh, Steve is is like he is restoring uh, bit by bit all of the films that he has. You know, his father Arthur Marwitz bought out Sam Lake, who had Mature Pictures and several other distribution companies. So he's got a huge, huge catalog of films, and uh, you know it's. Kind of, you can appreciate it's a it's it's difficult to get the negative on the negative. They can restore from a print, but they prefer the the uh, the negative. And he has a lot of that stuff. It's just he's a one man operation, and he's just running himself into the ground trying to keep up with that. But he has some. There's a, a place that does the restoration in Bridgeport, Connecticut called the vinegar syndrome and they you know they do fabulous work they they just you know but it but it ain't cheap and it ain't fast so steve has been um uh working away at that so you know eventually a lot more of the films he did radley metzger's films i'm sure you're aware of that and uh he's done several other pictures and so um, I was happy that he that he picked Wanda to do, you know, as a restoration because it is very complicated, very involved. You know, they go through those films frame by frame, and they spot and clean up every frame. They redo the color, the prints. I mean, well, they're not prints, but the the uh, Blu-rays and DVDs look like they just came from the lab, like the original quality. So um, kudos for them. Well, hey, how about next year around tax time, we do Wanda Whips Wall Street? <laughs> well, they can't get me on that because I did that. Uh, all, of my, all, of my, uh, all of my films, uh, you know, I did for, well, not all of them, but uh, all of the films that I, I did, I always uh, work pretty much for the salary. Uh, that's exactly what Jerry Damiano did after um, he had made a number of films and just never saw the backside of those films. Um, uh, a quick, a quick uh, example: I did the film uh, Sizzle in 1979 uh, when I was in New Orleans in 1985 with Arista de who is uh, Joe Diamato doing a picture. Sizzle was playing on Canal Street in the theater there, and I, I went back in 85, and it was still playing. And then when Chuck finally sold everything to Anat Singh in South Africa, 
uh, he sent me the last report and he said I owed fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> so yeah, you say, well, hey, how can that be? You say, well, we got advertising, we got shipping, we got print costs, you know, and stuff. So that the old adage of the most creative people are in the in the accounting department is true, you know. <laughs> so. I, but I always got my money up front, you know, and then then got points. But uh, you know, I had about seven films with Chuck, and they all got sold without me getting any money. That show is great. Well, hey, Larry, thank you so much. This has been great. Well, I hope you got everything you need, Mike. If you if you have any other, you know, any questions, it's always a, it's always a pleasure and a treat to talk with you, and um, I look forward to listening to the podcast. How did you get your start in the business? I was uh, always active in theater as a child. There was nothing ever else that I wanted other than to star in theater, film, television. I had won all sorts of awards, majored in theater at the university. Then Richard Nixon sent me um, a letter inviting me to change the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese and... Uh, but the Army sent me to Washington, where I wrote magazine articles and worked for the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the day and at night, performed in theater, studied theater, took classes. Then when I got out of the Army, I went straight from Washington to New York City and um, almost immediately started getting callbacks for shows and... The first thing I did that actually opened was at Judson Poets Theater, one of the great um, legendary off-off Broadway. It was Judson Poets Theater, La Mama, where I played so many times, none so many. And then within a number of years, I wound up on Broadway as the lead in Old Calcutta, the longest-running show for many, many, many years. And I was there for many, 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 many years. At the same time, I was also studying voice, did opera, worked as a magician, and then I uh, worked as an acting coach, as a teacher, and uh, had many, many people. Um, well, I set them forth onto their careers in, in theater, and uh, very, very proud of them, very happy for them. So how did you go from that into film acting? Um, the film acting uh, came about from my agent. I was on Broadway, and they had all sorts of roles for me. I had studied film technique, but then at one point I got the lead in a movie that took me to Europe. And I learned gradually to translate the... Um, theatrical skills to um, basically what you call film technique and which is a large uh, part of it is just thinking it and being there and being present and keep breathing um, I was working I was a member of the Michael Moriarty Pottersfield Theater Company Michael had won all sorts of film theater and television awards Emmy after Emmy and won the Tony for Find Your Way Home. He was very, very helpful and focused me on 
focusing me on the breathing and the breath and just being centered within the breath, which I was able to like, uh, to take later and learn to a film as um, George Stevens told Shelley Winters. It's just thinking it. <laughs> of course, there's so much more to it than that, but uh, that's what it translates down and boils down to a lot of that. What were some of the, your early film roles? Oh, my gracious, I did um, roles in a lot of the adult industry things, uh, in the pink, Le Faire Astranger. I was also the lead, uh, one of the leads in a made-for-TV film called You Can't Go Home Again, based upon Thomas Wolfe's book, and uh, played opposite Tammy Grimes. Uh, those are my early, some of my early television things. did some things for Woody Allen. Uh, this is all in New York in the 70s. And late 70s. I just had a, a terrific time growing and learning at the same time. And this time I was always teaching. I was teaching for two different studios. I was teaching Shakespeare from Michael Moriarty and the techniques of breath and finding joy within the breath. And at the same time, taking beginning, very, very beginning actors working for something called the Beginners Acting Studio, Michael Sawyer Studios. Get me quite active at that point. When you found yourself kind of making the first forays into adult film, did you find that you were able to utilize that for the screen as well as you had been on stage? More so ever than ever. At the time, within the adult genre, you were people who had been with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the people who had done Broadway, as I had, and it was a different era. This is just another kind. I, I worked with people in the adult genre with whom I'd also worked in cartoon voices <laughs> in very, very straight industrial films and commercials and, and children's theater type films. Uh, it was the, that was the job you had that day, that week. You kind of played with some of the um, golden era people. I mean, you were in in the golden era of adult films, so you got to work with folks like uh, Robert Kerman, Ron Jeremy, Sharon oh, Mitchell. Zebedee Colt. Zebedee Colt. Ed Earl, who was known around the world as one of the best actors, and who'd been, he was standby for Tim Curry and Travesties. And, I mean, these were uh, some very, very serious film actors. And we, we loved working. We loved working. We loved doing what we were doing. And um, basically at that point, as we, I, I got into it just a bit later because I had been on, on Broadway for so many years in Calcutta. So I sort of caught up with it at that point. <laughs> yeah, I actually got to see one of your films on the big screen in England, of all places. I saw a theatrical run of Bordello, House of the Rising Sun. Oh, my gracious. Yes, yes. Made in 1984, released in 1985 in England. You know, it's really funny. A fellow from my church actually told me he came, he was walking down Place de Gaulle in Paris and saw my picture huge over some. <laughs> um, but yes, um, Modelo, that was known as House of the Rising Sun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. We had a blast doing that one. And that was the kind of stuff that I did for Chuck Vincent. 
Chuck in all genre was always basically uh, first and foremost a serious filmmaker, but a, a mad, mad silly person. He loved the French farce kind of thing because his background had been in theater and in French farce and uh, and farcical filmmaking, and that was his big thing. That was the thing he loved to do most. He, he was not so much into the the hardcore thing as he was into the the more softcore silly romp, which he also applied to the um, hardcore thing. What was he like to work with? Oh my God! Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! He trusted you. You dare not ask Chuck an actory question. He would say, "You know not to ask me stuff like that, Scott." So it was all up to you, and. All of your Stanislavski, Michael Chekhov training, all of your breath. When the camera was there, when it was turned on and the word action was going, you had such freedom to be there and to play within the moment and really be there within the moment. And Chuck on the other side would be howling, screaming, carrying on, Sort of like a cross between a banshee and a um, <laughs> hyena. His incredible laugh. And when the scene would stop, he would roar out in laughter. And said, so let's just take this one again. Chuck was your biggest fan, if you knew what you were doing. Now, if you didn't know what you were doing, if you had somehow managed to get there and couldn't do it on a dime for Chuck, it was a problem. And you would never work again for Chuck Vincent. Everybody and their grandmother wanted to work for Chuck Vincent. I had people calling me. I had agents calling me. Can you get my script to this guy? Can you get my actor to this guy? I couldn't. I just was one of the people who was very, very blessed to um, be working for the, uh, the platinum players, as we called ourselves the platinum picture players, and you knew what you were getting into. You would have an incredible script and be a lot of fun. Also, your input into this, if you didn't think a line was working, didn't ask Chuck about it, just change it, and he would howl and think he'd written himself. <laughs> but um, the, the thing was, you could go, and you could work for Chuck, but... Uh, someone once said to me, uh, Lorraine Altamira, the makeup artist, said to me, you know, with Scott, with you, he says, you know that scene we did two years ago? Um, give me number seven and number 43 here. And uh, you would sort of know what he was talking about. You were a palette for Chuck. And you knew what he meant. We all had a shorthand. You worked with him a lot over the years. Oh, I did. I did. Um, both in that and in Electric Blue on on the Playboy Channel, and this is all quite a quite a wonderful time because I was also the star of Calcutta on Broadway at the time. So that was my day job. <laughs> no, Chuck was quite wonderful, wonderful and charming. But if he thought there was a problem, oh, he could be quite vicious. But he hired you again and again and again because he knew you could perform on a dime. At that hour, the scripts were all laid out by, this will be shot from 8.45 to 9.15. 
And by if 917 came around and that scene hadn't been shot three times with masters, close-ups, and coverage, you were in big trouble. And it was literally that laid out. And he'd be screaming, Ash Department! Making sure the next set was ready. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. And anybody who's ever worked will tell you I am not. Not exaggerating at all. It was most glorious, joyous, silly movie factory. <laughs> You're the one to be part of. <laughs> tell me about Cleo Leo. How was that for you? It was glorious. I remember Cleo Leo because I had done the lead in a film called New York's Finest, in which I actually played 10 different guys and four different women. So I had the drag thing down. But with Cleo Leo, the idea of a total male chauvinist pig, but who's also a really likable guy. I mean, he's just a, he doesn't know any better. And who learns what it is to have the sensibility and the sensitivity femininity uh, can bring to a person. It was quite, quite a, a fun thing. And plus, I was working with Jane and Jennifer Delora and Ellen Nagar, Rick Savage. I mean, that, that was, we were a whole family. We all knew each other's breaths before we took them. So we had gotten so far into the picture, it was proceeding, and it had like an 11-day budget, and Janie and I were finished with two weeks' worth of work after five days. We just worked so well. I remember... Particularly, we were supposed to, the scenes that we were supposed to shoot Monday, we were ready to shoot on Friday afternoon. So we did it. I know a lot of the guys were quite upset because they weren't on the set that day to see Ginger Lynn naked. Uh, they came back Monday really disappointed. I said, to one of the guys, I said to one guy, yeah, but she kept calling out your name. But um, Chuck, knowing the situation, would guide you through it, drive you through it. And, of course, we all had a wonderful, wonderful cinematographer, Larry Ravine, who directed me in a horror film that I wrote last year, and Dale Whitman, wonderful sound man. And we had Chip Lambert, who was uh, Chuck's uh, production associate whipping boy. <laughs> and he always treated We always make up, Chad! Chad! I mean, uh, that's the way Chuck talked. Chuck screamed. He was just what you were, a screaming F word, but he knew it. And that was sort of the fun of the whole thing. It was just, this, your, your mad gay uncle was doing this crazy movie with you. That was the way it always was. And that was Chuck. And then we, we finished, uh, Cleo Leo, we finished a day uh, and a half early. So uh, Chuck brought us in anyway and had us spend the entire day just shooting the posters and the lobby cards and stuff. Armin Weston, who had done a wonderful movie called Takeoff, uh, shot those. But I, I remember working on, on Cleo Leo, the challenge, not in the Leo parts, but in the Cleo part, after Leo comes back, how much has he changed? How much femininity has taught him how much physically can he be female and how much does the male side begin to take over and then the scenes with um, 
his ex-wife and the son, all these things began, you know, and began to settle in on him. But that was the, the, the real challenge, as I recall, in, in that situation. Great fun. Great. We had a blast. We shot it. Um, I remember we started January 11th. Now, why I remember that, I'll never know. Of 1989. I remember it when I got the call from it. I'd just come in from Oak Calcutta, having done some work on Ghostbusters 2 that day. I remember it coming in and doing Oak Calcutta, being very upset about the way things had gone that day uh, on the set. But uh, I um, get the call that we have this incredible role for you. And then the next thing I pick up, there's variety and show business. All these newspapers talking about Scott Baker playing this male chauvinist. And, of course, all the jokes that came <laughs> around and about that, knowing that I'm quite not, actually, a very sensitive guy. Just a total prick in life. <laughs> but it was a wonderful challenge. It was a wonderful... It was, and, and when we started shooting... Um, and within uh, a few days, we have, you know, a few weeks, we were finished. And then uh, I was, you know, back to work in Calcutta, and I had no idea that this film, all 25 years later, would have this incredible interest and in, uh, curiosity about it, as well as Platinum Pictures, as well as the whole Chuck Vincent experience. I remember... The last time I spoke to Chuck was in 1981. I was in Provincetown doing um, the Charles Bush plays, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom and Coma. And I called him because every night on television there in Boston, Provincetown area, they were showing Chuck Vincent movies. It was a Chuck Vincent festival, therefore a Scott Baker festival. And I would walk down the street, and everybody would be screaming, mobbing me. And I, I called Chuck, and I said, uh, he was living in Key West um, at the time. And I said, Chuck, I just want to thank you for making me uh, the star of the Playboy channel after 3 a.m. He said, oh, we're going to do another one, booby. We're going to do another one. That's why he always called me booby. We're going to do another one, booby. And... Um, uh, within two days, he had passed away. And so many people were still calling me saying, can you get me with Chuck? And I said, well, um, unfortunate news here. But the whole Platinum Pictures era, um, the movies, uh, every month, a month, month and a half, you could depend on having a wonderful role in a movie or a wonderful role in an Electric Blue series, or both. And I was also the voiceover man for Electric Blue, and was actually rather instrumental in getting it played here because um, I'd done my first Electric Blue in Egypt. And uh, the second one I did, uh, Janie Hamilton directed. Then I started nudging, I was fighting for um, Club International doing uh, comedy stuff. And then I said, um, you know, the wraparound stories, the 
for electric pollution, it just should be shot here. We're much better. We're much funnier. And uh, within about a few months, um, lo and behold, there we were. Every month and a half or so, you can depend on having a terrific role in a film, a terrific role in Electric Blue. But with Chuck, you just had to know the score. You had to be able to turn on a dime. And I learned so much about making movies, about scheduling, about focusing from Chuck. It was an amazing experience the, uh, those several years. When you were doing your voiceover for the film, kind of the uh, inner monologue for uh, Cleo, yeah, right. were you on set or was that post? No, I was absolutely on set all the time. It had to be that. It had to be that. And, and vice versa. Um, we were all there very, very closely together. And Jamie and I had worked so many times together. We, we virtually knew each other's pauses before we had them. What are you up to these days? Well, I just finished a horror film called And Heaven and Nature Scream, A Holiday Delight. Then also, I'm um, working with a new agent. I, I have this wonderful, wonderful one-man show called Bang the Curse of John Wilkes Booth, how he was not killed in Garrison, but rather went on and um, committed suicide in Enid, Oklahoma in 1903. All very historically accurate and uh, infuriating and mad and grandly theatrical. But those are the the last two things (laughs) I've been working on. But I'm quite excited about And Heaven and Nature's Scream. We'll see where that leads us. Thanks to Mr. Baker and Mr. Ravine for taking the time. And we're discussing Cleo Leo this week with our guest co-host, Jill Nelson. Now, we did look at this film in comparison to another movie, uh, obviously a few more dollars on the budget. And that would be the 1991 film by Blake Edwards, who we know from his many films, such as Ten and specifically the Pink Panther series. He had a bit more money to do Switch in 1991. But it is, as I was watching them basically a few hours apart, I thought to myself, man, uh, you had a bigger budget, but um, I'm I'm not buying this one uh, more than the lower budget one. I definitely wasn't. When did you first see this one, Jill? I think I probably saw it when it came out. I'm, I'm thinking I did because I always have liked Ellen Barkin since I saw her in Diner. So I'm thinking that it was familiar to me. I either saw it on TV or saw it when it, when it came out, but around the time that it was released. I just remember the trailer. And there's certain scenes that are in the film, and I think I may have saw it once on TV, but I don't remember. It's been so long ago. It really didn't have a huge impact on me. All I really remember is um, Ellen Barkin's kind of swagger in here, which I enjoy. I think that she does a good job, but I think the material is really lacking. And I really have some problem with the, the politics in here. 
I have huge problems with this movie. I saw this one in 1991 uh, when it w- came out. I, I was still working at the movie theater, so I got to see it for free. And I'm I'm glad that I saw it for free. I would have hated to have paid money for this. This movie just made me so mad. There's one particular part that made me incredibly mad, and I'm sure we'll talk about that within a few minutes here. The whole third act is what I think you're yes. talking about. Yeah. Well, basically, the intro to the third act, why the third act happens, okay. is probably the worst thing in the world for All right. me. We'll, we'll lead up to that. So the, the the whole thing, much like Cleo Leo, is we have an executive, and he is at an advertising agency. And his name is Steve, and he's kind of this ladies' man, which which is funny to me as I was watching it. I feel like there's a couple of scenes that are missing. It almost feels like obvious edits, and I don't know if you notice this or not, because within like the first four minutes, he's getting a call from this one woman, and she's like, yeah, you should come over, and my two friends are here. So it's like these three women who he used to be with have all invited him over to play in the hot tub and that's supposed to like build into our minds that he's this Thario and he's just a terrible, terrible guy in terms of how he treats women. But I, I feel like that maybe there was a scene before this where he did go on a date or he did have some more interactions because before he gets this call, there's not really a lot of interaction that way for us to even build that into the character. This first act is almost non-existent. I mean, it's just, so quick how fast he is in that hot tub with these women and how do we know what kind of guy he is we barely know this character at all i mean with cleo leo you have that great thing that i talked about with the stakes and all this kind of stuff we get nothing like that here we don't get him you know calling women toots or any of that kind of stuff it's just somehow we're supposed to know this and The way that he gets in this hot tub, I mean, you know, hey, it looked like a nice party to me. And But apparently, yeah, if you have more than one semi-naked woman in a hot tub with you and you're drinking champagne and living it up, apparently you are an evil person. (laughs) It's not every man's dream. No, (laughs) I, I found it strange because I saw it, too, when he was walking in the door. I thought, okay, he's obviously had relationships with all three of these women. Why isn't he nervous that they're all together and congregating on him? He didn't even that didn't even cross his mind. Didn't it, didn't he wonder why they were all together? I think that it's almost like Blake Edwards or you know the the, the production just assumed that because it's Perry King, we're just supposed to know that he's a ladies' man and it needs no introduction. You know, that's kind of the way that how I took it. Yeah, there's there's that whole thing, and then it's just um, I don't know. It just it doesn't it doesn't play as well as I wanted it to. I think if they would have put a couple of scenes before that, then when he's taken down, we would be like, good, you know, like we would be on the side with the women. But the problem is, is I think for a film that wants us to sympathize with with the women, I think Blake Edwards throws so much stuff in here that gets us not to. Right. Oh, yeah, these women are evil. 
right off the bat. Mm-hmm. I mean, seeing these three women in this uh, hot tub, I thought they were going to start d- being the weird sisters from Macbeth or something, because they just look like three witches that are there brewing up something evil to cast a spell on this guy. And I'm just like, yeah, this really isn't right. I really probably should feel something for these women. And instead, they come off as cold-blooded killers, because that's how they are in this film. And the only other times we see them, it's like they're you know, getting high, which in 1991, God forbid, you know, the war on drugs had already been raging. So if you're smoking a joint in a movie at this particular point, you are immediately evil. You are worse than having any kind of liaison with three women in a hot tub. You are a marked person. I got to say, Joe Beth Williams looking very nice in this movie. Though. Yeah, she looked great. She did look great. Yeah. She was great. I thought she was one of the best parts of the movie, really. Joe Beth Williams' performance. Because you don't get anything from those other two women whatsoever. And, and I kept looking at her and going, oh, Annette Benning." I don't know why, but I kept thinking it was Annette Benning. And Lorraine Bracco was in that as well. Yeah. She was so good in this movie. And that's the only part of the movie that I actually liked was the interaction between Lorraine Bracco and Ellen Barkin in here. And it's kind of that same thing that we had with Bob and Cleo, where it's like she is wants to fight her attraction and all this and just kind of coming to grips. And it's interesting that they threw this lesbian relationship in there. But then for me, it was pretty horrible because there was that whole idea of like, Oh, you want to take me out in public? And it was just like, you know, Oh no, that we we can go to, you know, we can meet in private or meet over uh, uh, for business meeting, but actually going out where people might see us together, I just felt like, you know, oh, why don't you just condemn lesbianism and same-sex relationships altogether because it's okay for us to kind of play with this, but God forbid we be seen together. There seems to be like maybe 30 seconds to a minute where it's okay, and that's where they go to that one club. Yeah, and yeah, that there, was very quickly shown. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you get sort of this sensitivity of, oh, this is okay, and it's normal and all that stuff, and then it reverts back to... You know, of course, lesbians are butch and they'll kick your ass. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> as soon mm-hmm. as as soon as it starts <laughs> to get a little testy. So, so while I give them a, a marginal like way to go for 1991, there's a, another part where I go, well, you just you know all the credit you just earned, you just cashed it all right there. So you're you're you flatlined on that one, son. Well, because we get that same kind of thing, like I was talking about with Ginger Lynn and Jane Hamilton walking down the street, and those two construction workers and all that, and you know, immediately them going from uh, ball busters to dykes or drag queens, mm-hmm. and all those slurs happening and stuff, and we have almost the same thing in here with these guys at this uh, bar that uh, Ellen Burson's character always goes to, and you know, it, it just it feels so different in this movie and it feels like you know that there's more of a physical threat in this one as far as these guys want to you know uh punch your lights out and everything but yeah it's like the whole idea of like well who wears the pants in this relationship and it's just like oh it's it didn't necessarily feel like it was coming from the characters in the film it felt more like it was coming from the filmmaker in that instance i don't know if that makes any sense 
Yeah, I actually thought, it, well, during those scenes, I thought this is almost a vehicle because Alan Barkin has a reputation for, for playing tough roles. And I thought this is almost a vehicle for her to kind of go nuts in that. That's what I, that's kind of how I looked at it. Like I all of a sudden saw her out of the character of Amanda and now it was like Alan Barkin's going to do a free for all in this little bit. <laughs> that's how I kind of viewed it. So I don't know, but uh, yeah, I agree. It was, uh, it was, it was interesting. It's so funny to me because the homophobia in this movie, which I'm finding pretty offensive as we're going through here, Coming from Blake Edwards, who a few years prior had made Victor Victoria, which I don't know if I'm just looking at that film in the wrong way, but for me, that's one of the most like positive films. I mean, especially the relationship between Alex Karras and Robert Preston, and uh, you know, just there were so many great things in that film. And last time I saw it, which was probably two years ago, it still holds up. Really, this feels like a 180 from that. It just feels completely backwards. You know, where it feels like it fits, and I hate to say this, and I know that he was he was a little bit older, um, is it feels like it would be a movie that would have been done in the 60s to a certain extent. And you could have gotten away with some of these, you know, stereotypical things. And especially, like you were saying, the lead up to the third act and all of that. And that could all be laughed and brushed off. But by 91, and especially today, it just seems kind of horrific at times. So we haven't even talked about Jimmy Smith's because he's somewhat of a non-character through a lot of this film. We get really no sense, like Jimmy Smith's, you know, absolutely gorgeous man, but from a Latino background, and here he is in white corporate America, he absolutely has no problems, apparently, in white corporate America, because he's right up there near the top. He's he's uh, the, the, the friend of this guy, and who's, you know, going to be on the big account and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, he's just there kind of to be chummy with Amanda. He's uh, the, the guy's best friend. And I was, you know, happy to see that he kind of uh, accepted that she was, uh, he had turned into she and um, some of their interactions are pretty good. But yeah, then as we go along here and we get kind of going, you know, we have. I just want to throw something in on here. This is another opportunity that was completely lost. Like I was talking about, there feels like there should have been a scene up front. Um, there should have been a Jimmy Smith scene before she mm-hmm. calls him before and he says. Was introduced. Yeah, 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 because we're not introduced to him until she right. uh, he becomes her. And it would have been good to have a scene with him up front where he's off doing his thing with the ladies and then he meets up with his friend. And because there's this implication that he's a good guy, that he would like be the good guy and like admonish him and go, what are you doing, man? You know, like I got this thing, you know, like, why are you doing this? You know, and be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know how we are. Eh, We're old buds or something like something up front. So that that way we understand who this character is. We, and that leads us through the rest of the piece because he is so integral to, like we said, we haven't told you what it is yet. And we're going to spoil it. The setup of the third act. And then the end of the film that, it seems like they totally missed an opportunity to build that in in the front. And maybe they did have it, or maybe they considered it. And when they did do that, it made him seem evil in the end. (laughs) And that's the only thing I can think of is that if they would have put that in the front and then everything happens the way it happens, it would be like, why the hell did you do that? It just seemed to me, it's so typical of Hollywood's tendency to, 
kind of thrust or, or you know, do the fast track through through stories. And, you know, they sort of thrust characters down our throats in many ways without, maybe not so much now because movies are longer, I guess, but it depends on the budget, of course. But there's never the sort of the buildup of the character. And I, and I found that, too, lacking just exactly what you said, Rob. I thought, okay, just give me one scene. I just need one, one more scene. It doesn't have to be long, but just to establish who he is and in relationship to to Steve, you know, what their, what, their, what their relationship's like so that we have something to, to sort of build on. So should we talk about the third act? I mean, we've pussyfooted around a lot. But. <laughs> that might not be the best <laughs> word to use, um, but sure. First, let me say, like, we talked about how Cleo was struggling inside of this world. You know, when she becomes Cleo from being Leo, she has no money no way to get money out of the bank. Credit cards are cut up immediately. She tries to cash a check for a million dollars. But but regardless of the amount, the all checks have been stopped that had Leo's name on it. So she is completely busted, is is desperate, you know, has to uh you know find uh, a way to live. You know, she can't get back in the apartment because the nephew's living in there, so she ends up living with Ginger Lynn. And she gets a job and is, you know, really good at it. She gets ahead, like I said, through the embezzlement stuff uh, uh, in order to take back the company. But it's funny because as Amanda, the Ellen Barkin character basically just used blackmail the entire time. Like whenever she wants anything, she goes back and says, oh, my brother told me that he hooked you up with this redhead. So basically every person in this movie has had some sort of illicit affair or something going on (laughs) that this guy knows about. And he uses that against every single person. There's not one person that he doesn't have dirt on in this movie. And so he gets to keep the apartment. He gets a job because he talks about how there's that apartment for the boss where he keeps his floozy, all this kind of stuff. The only way he gets ahead is through blackmail. So, yeah, I just had to put that out there as far as the morals of this character and all that. But regardless of how bad the morals of Amanda are, and she is starting to kind of come around now after this relationship with Lorraine Bracco, and Lorraine Bracco kind of throws her over for this other man, which was real slap in the face, goes out and gets drunk. And that leads us into the third act, which, again, I lost my shit when I saw this in 91. And I almost lost my shit again last weekend when I was watching it. So after you, Rob. Yeah, basically, um, the Ellen Barkin character gets date raped or acquaintance raped by the Jimmy Smith's character. And it's played off with, so, oh, you lost your virginity. Oh, isn't that a, a treat? And not only that, but ends up becoming pregnant because Mm -hmm. of it. And that becomes the premise for the entire third act at the end of the film. And there's this whole aspect also related to, uh, and and there is a conversation about it at one point, where the doctors have told her that if you have the kid, you're going to die. That basically, this is your situation, and instead of having an abortion, there's this whole like soliloquy about, oh, I've got this life inside of me and something will live on beyond me and, and all of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking to myself, 
I know people who have been sexually assaulted. Uh, has not led, as far as I know, to a pregnancy. But I don't think anyone who's been sexually assaulted by a friend, you know, um, would be happy to carry their baby to term and and be just so like poetic about it and and happy about it. That's why I said if they had this piece up the front of the film with the two of them as men being pals, that it may actually make that scene worse. Because it would be like, you know, they've been friends all this time as opposed to just meeting at this one point and we get the feeling that they have known each other. But I don't know. It's like that whole end, that whole third act is entirely problematic. And another thing that I have a problem with is looking at the credits on this thing after I watched it, like one of the executive producers is a woman. Now, you would think Mm. that when this script came across her desk and she looked at it or at least looked at the dailies, go, no, you're going to have to reshoot that. That's that's terrible. That that's that's horrible, but somehow it got through. And I was reading uh, reviews online about, oh, the ending always makes me cry because the thing is, is she I dies. I read that too. And then yeah, Jimmy Smith yeah. and the little girl like go to visit her grave. Right, right. And I'm just like, this the the politics of this film, much like the politics of another movie that came out around this time that everybody loves, Pretty Woman just baffles me in terms of how people can't step back for a second and go, yeah, maybe that's not the best story, (laughs) you know? Yeah. They're so caught up in the fantasy ending though. It's, it's the, you know, it's like the, the Barbie doll syndrome or something. Everyone's so caught up in the fantasy ending that they can't really take a look at what's really going on. I thought, you know, I felt mixed. I, I hate to admit it after all you guys have said, but I felt mixed about that scene because I didn't think of Jimmy Smith's character as a bad guy. I thought of him as he was Steve's best friend, and I didn't think that he was out to hurt her. He said, now we have no way of verifying this, but he did say that she was agreeable to this losing her virginity. Now, (laughs) you're probably both sitting there in shock. But I mean, I I was thinking to myself, I was thinking 1991, and I know you mentioned, but I thought, how do we know? I mean, how do we know for certain? Because even I thought that her reaction to having had sex with him was so strong the next morning because she was still, she wasn't like, she didn't experience a transformation that, Jane Hamilton's character, the, the the Cleo did, where she sort of gently became, sort of embraced the whole becoming a woman. She was still Steve. And I thought that that's what offended her more than the fact that she'd lost her virginity. I thought it was the fact that she felt that she had had sex as a man with another man. Now, that's how I looked at it. We're in a great mood. What's that? I got your period? I should be so fucking lucky. Yeah. What happened? It's a long story. Just give me the punchline. I lost my virginity. Obviously without your consent. I passed out. I don't remember anything. Who's the unlucky man? I'm <laughs> Walter. Well, it's not exactly Romeo and Juliet, but then I always say, to each his own. Amanda, we got to talk. I don't talk to rapists. Rapists? I was drunk, passed out. She loved it. Bullshit, Walt. 
Don't you give me that macho, self-serving crap. Oh. I was unconscious, buddy boy. I didn't love anything. I was helpless. You took advantage of me. I have never taken advantage of anybody in my life. Oh, yeah, that's what all you guys say. You take a girl out for dinner, you get her drunk. Oh. It's, it's date rape, Walt. Read the paper. It happens all the time. Well, it didn't happen here, not last oh, night. Oh, I don't, I don't believe it. I mean, after all the years we've been buddies, it's like, what? it's like, you know, guys like you are what's wrong with this what? society. What? After all the years we've been buddies? What the fuck are you talking well, about? Don't talking? try to change the subject here. Do you realize that every six minutes a woman is raped in this country? I didn't realize. No, You didn't sorry. realize. No, why should you realize, right, Roll? Why should you care? You're just one of the assholes responsible for this statistic. Else? No, wait a goddamn minute. For what, Walt? For you to rape some other poor, innocent, unsuspecting female? I was a virgin, goddamn you! Growing up in a very politically correct age... And having something like this happen, it just, it really just pushed a lot of buttons. You know, I was in college at the time, and there's so many warnings about, you know, don't drink drinks that are offered to you. And yes, they are very drunk when this scene starts. And then just the way that it's so casual as far as like, where are your pants? Oh, you don't have your pants on. And it's almost like he might as well have said, Oops, my dick slipped into you. He's so nonchalant about it that it was just like, really? And she's horrified, but not nearly as much as I thought she should be. Like, she's more angry at him. Yeah, because how dare you have sex with me? I'm a man inside of this woman's body. Rather than, I am completely violated, you took my virginity, and, you know, this is terrible. I thought we were friends. And Yeah, just... Oh, it, something about that just really turned my stomach. And then to play into that whole trope that we have of movies, this is one of my least favorite movie tropes of all times, is that when one character dies, a baby is born. In this case, it's the same time kind of thing, but there's so many movies where your main character dies or someone close to the main character, and then somebody has a baby within five minutes. It's just like, oh, you see... The balance is restored. The life will go on. And that is, to me, kind of what this movie is saying. And finally, she has someone who loves her. That baby, within the two minutes that that baby's on her chest, loves her. And that, Yeah, and that was her vindication. Because we haven't even talked about the God Devil stuff at all in this right, film right. either. It's funny, the second season of True Detective just ended, and I don't know if either of you watched it, but that is how it ended. That's spoiler, too, but... The whole baby thing, right? <laughs> See, and then that happened then, there too. And then the yeah. whole thing, like even in the end, it seems like you're still trapped. And this is like another sort of like existentialist dilemma that I had with the ending of this film. Is we hear this voiceover of, I guess, the tribunal when he dies, and then they send him back as the woman. Oh, it's God. Yeah, but right, there's, right. but there's. You know, there, there's the discussion, and it's like, okay, well, now you get to be an angel. Do you want to be a male or a female angel? Yeah, and and, and it's, it's like, like she can't decide or he can't decide, right? Right, and and to me, it's just like that's horrible because it's like even in like the spiritual realm, you can't dispossess yourself of these roles. Which to me, like the true sort of like enlightenment would be, okay, I've moved beyond this now. I'm I'm not I'm mm-hmm, not either mm-hmm. now. I'm just this thing. Right. And right. that would be like the better option. It's like why do you gotta pick one? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I actually felt like bad for the character in the end because they're still stuck in this constant cycle. 
I mean, that's one of the things I liked about Constantine, the the movie version at least, was that our angel who has a male name is being played by Tilda Swinton. So it's basically like, you know, and she is playing it very much, you know, as a person who doesn't have a definite gender. And that to me basically is angels, you know? So yeah, again, like why does an angel have to be male or female? Why can't it be this ethereal being? Do we have to have men and women angels? Hell, even Kevin Smith and dogma has that because there's, the scene where um, Alan Rickman's character shows up in Linda Fiorentino's bedroom and she goes, don't worry, I don't have anything and like pulls down his pants. So it's like <laughs> this, this whole idea of just angels being gender, you know, gender neutral in a way. They're just, they're angels. They're not, they don't have to deal with human gender BS. Can't necessarily recommend switch though. It is interesting to see how a, let's say lower budget quasi adult film, a film made with a bunch of quote unquote adult film actors that that to me is heads and shoulders above this big budget Hollywood film that came out two years later. And was it ripped off? I mean, it must've been. Well, the story I think we'll talk. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Let's talk a little bit more about that after we take another break. Let's go ahead and take a break here. We're going to play a couple more interviews. The first is with Cleo herself, Jane Hamilton, and the second one is with Ginger Lynn. I know that you had worked a lot with Chuck Vinson at this point. What was kind of your first experience like with him? I guess the first time I met him, someone, uh, I think it was Roy Stewart, Maybe it took me up to his office in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, he actually looked at my modeling pictures and my acting resume, and I think I actually read for him, which was uh, pretty unusual, I was to find out. I didn't know that, but at that time, it was I thought it was normal, but it wasn't. Not everybody had to read and, you know, kind of audition, and he said the, the next time that he had something he would be, you know, happy to give me a try. So I thought he was uh, very professional, very organized, and a nice guy. What kind of set his productions apart from other ones that you were in at that point? He was very business-like and very into getting the movies made and done. He was professional. He had a schedule. He had a shot list. He had scripts made up. Here's what I actually found out. I uh, And I... Maybe maybe it correlates to what I later found out about directing as well. But on his stuff, I felt like it was so organized and so businesslike and so well done. Sometimes I felt the sex was maybe a little tamer than in other movies where you were kind of flying by the seat of your pants. You were improvising scenes and everything wasn't so well done. Does that make sense? I guess maybe that was our version of like amateur over professional. And I found sometimes uh, when it was a little haphazard, uh, maybe the sex tended to be a little bit harmless. Is that, interesting? Is that weird? Are you saying that not everything was scripted on every movie that you've been in? <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> but, but, but Chuck always did. Chuck had a, a plan and he did have a script and, you know, he knew what he wanted. Oftentimes, he would yell at me and go, Hamilton, quit reading that script. Jane Hamilton's my name I was born with. 
He would always call me Hamilton. I would say, oh, Chuck, um, it says in the script that we're supposed to do... I'm quit reading the script. How many times have I told you, quit reading the script? You know, when I called him out stuff like that. <laughs> because when it came time to do it, he, he kind of saw fit to do it another way. He is wonderful. I miss you, Chuck. Miss him, miss him. So tell me about Cleo Leo. What, how did you get this role? Was it just work, the chance to work with Chuck again? Yeah, you know, I got... I figured out. I think I counted them up at one time. I think I did 22 films with Chuck. And I think they were all films, too. I don't think any of them were shot on video. I think at that point it was all actual filmmaking. He would give... If he had a part like that he didn't know what to do with or a crazy character part or something, he'd go, oh, I'll give it to Hamilton. She'll do something with it. You know? I can't remember how I, how I got this, but I was so stoked to do it. You know? It was the funnest thing ever. Such a who. I think my favorite thing about it was getting to make him laugh. We did this one scene where I'm supposed to be trying on a dress in the dressing room. I don't know. I, I proceeded to get into the dress while it was still on a hanger or something like that. It was really, it was silly. Okay, it was it was really silly. And the best thing was was Chuck yelling cut and then going ah! He just screamed with laughter, and that that made me the happiest ever. If I could make Chuck laugh, I. I've done it. I've done my job. So <laughs> I'm really happy about that. It was, it was so much fun. And it's fun. It's fun to, um, you know, play a guy and affect a guy's mannerisms. It's it's really interesting because it's not a girl trying to be a guy. It's a guy trying to be a girl. Do you know what I mean? Right? And, you know, getting used to the, the stuff about being a girl while actually still being a guy. I don't know. It reminded me of that Victor Victoria kind of thing. It's just pretending to be a guy being a girl or something like that. So something like that. Really fun. Really, really fun. A good challenge. And any time to work with Chuck would, would be a wonderful time. You know, that's the first time I met Ginger was on that show. Yeah. Cause I, you know, heard about this Ginger Lynn and everything, but I'd never, I'd never met her. And at that time, you know, I'd been out of the adult, really wasn't working in the adult arena. Yeah, but I but I'd certainly you know heard about Ginger and everything, so it was really fun to meet her and work with her. She's awesome, and I later got to direct uh, her comeback movies, which was really a thrill for me. That was really good. And I, I love Ginger. She's a she's a vivacious, charming, beautiful woman. She's got a real zest for life, and it's it it, it infects everybody who's around her. You know, she she has this knack and ability to make everybody feel special and good. She's she's quite wonderful. Had you ever done that kind of like gender play type stuff on film or even on stage before? Uh, you know, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but I used to, when I was uh, stripping a lot, um, there was one set I did where I came out as a guy. You know, the guy would introduce the Veronica Hart, you know, and nobody would come out, you know, and Veronica Hart, you know, and no, nothing's happening and everything like that. And then I just kind of come across with the broom on the stage and they go, you, you, you seen Veronica? I'm like, no. And they go, well, you better fill in for her, you know, and then we start the music and I'd, that's oh, really fun. I had my cap on and my, I think it was beaver, beaver jacket. I think beaver was a school or something like that. So I had my beaver jacket on, my, my letter jacket that had beaver on it. And uh, I had these, um, not pull apart pants, but they had zips down the side of them so the pants could come off like that. And, you know, big cloddy um, boots. You know, I just proceeded to transform until it was obvious that I wasn't a guy. I'm sure nobody ever thought I was a guy, but it was sure fun doing it. And that was one of my little stage acts. So I think as, uh, 
important. One of the things that I've, I've learned about sexuality in all these years is that um, we definitely are combinations. You know, we all have masculine traits. We all have feminine traits. And it's just which one is, is more dominant than the other. And there's no black and white. It's all on the sliding scales of gray. I've got many masculine traits. I, uh, I was my father's son as well as his daughter. So he never told me that I couldn't. As a girl, he'd tease me and say, not bad for a girl, you know, but he never told me I couldn't do stuff because I was a girl. So as a result, you know, I built things with him and I know how to use power tools and I can tear down a wall pretty much better than I can put it up. But <laughs> I'm able I'm able to do all those things, you know, I can tile a floor and paint. And I was lucky, I guess, growing up that I, uh, my parents never... Uh, told me I couldn't do anything because of my sex. Um, so I got a lot of male and female rightly in me. I was curious about the actual shoot of the film. Were you and Scott on set all the time? Was he kind of narrating you while you are playing him and vice versa? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know what he said about it. You have to forgive me. I don't... Uh, you know, I remember the few things, but I don't remember tons about it. I, I, you know, I don't remember each thing about each individual shoot. I think maybe because I've been on so many shoots and so many, you know, I still work on set. I don't rightly remember, but I would assume not. I would assume that we acted. You know that, that line, um, you know, how Dustin Hoffman was a method actor and he, he didn't sleep and he didn't shower and he didn't, you know, and I think the... The gentleman, the English gentleman at Twitter, he goes, you know, have you ever heard of acting? You know, <laughs> you don't necessarily have to go through all of it. You just want to make it seem as if you have. Yeah. So um, I don't think I coached him and I don't think he coached me too much. Well, that may be wrong, but I, I don't believe that happened much. You've been in several what they call now porn parodies, like 8 to 4, obviously, 9 to 5, those kind of things. But this one, Cleo Leo, first time I can remember a... I, I can't even say it's an adult film because there's no sex to it, but more adult-themed, I guess, would be the, the way to put it. This film coming out, and then, what, a year, year and a half later, Switch coming out, which just seemed really strange to me that you would both hit on the same subject so close to the same time. Right. So, so Chuck actually went after them, and he tried to sue them because it was obvious that they had, had taken his idea and run with it. Although, you know, I'm sure he got his idea from somewhere, too. But he went after them, and I, the upshot of it was, is at that time, you couldn't copyright an idea. You could not, co if they had used some of the same language or the same characters or something, there would have been, I guess, a chance of something. But because they didn't, and it was just the idea and the gist of it, there was no, no joy. He didn't, uh, he didn't. But I, that's the first time I know of, um, like you say, an adult-oriented company going after mainstream as far as content, you know, now there's, it's been the other way around a lot. And I love those things, don't you? It's like on golden blonde, Edward penis hands, lust in space. Um, you know, I love all the shaving Ryan's privates. I mean, those are, those are fabulous. They're right up my alley. I'm a punster from forever. And I love all that stuff. This, this I think was actually the first time that, um, an adult company went after mainstream and, and we, he saw no satisfaction from it all. Just told, too bad. 
for a few years, you were working a lot with James Avalon. How was that experience for you? Uh, it's going great. Thank you. I still work with him all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do uh, we do two uh, features a month with, with Mile High Video, uh, Mile High Entertainment, rather, and we do the Sweet Sinners line. And we do two a month. And for those James Avalon fan of yours, he's now doing uh, Erotic X, which is a different thing. I'm not used on those. Those are just like one scene that they shoot, I guess, per day. And it's more of a... I don't want to say an Andrew Blake kind of setup, but it's more like beautiful, artsy, as opposed, um, you know, vignette stuff, as opposed to having a storyline. The stuff we do are kind of melodramas. They're kind of like uh, what you'd see on a soap opera kind of thing. But I love the way that he suits the sex. I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome. They, you know, they don't have the performers open up. There's really very little sex direction at all, except that, you know, it should be true to type and that it starts out usually on the more romantic end. There's a lot of kissing and foreplay before it goes into it. It makes me really happy to work on them. The the storylines are silly. They're all about the almost illegal. You know, like my my daughter's boyfriend, my, you know, like when there was a mother exchange was a recent one we did. Uh, there's father figure nine because, you know, one through eight was just so amazing. You can't get enough of it. Um, <laughs> so that, that part of it, I think, is silly, but uh, they always come up with great scripts and great little twists. Um yeah, and they're fun. And also, I I think, Mike, i I got to be honest with you. After all of this, I don't really care about porn one way or the other, to be honest with you. I'm not a pro-porn crusader. I'm not an anti-porn god knows by any means, you know. But it's not like uh, I spend tons of my life thinking about pornography. I just don't. And I don't consume a lot of pornography. It's my work. What I figured out after being in this business for so long and still wanting to be on set, I like the people. I like the people I get to hang out with. I always have. I always will. I can't imagine being with with other people. I mean, it's really, it's really very interesting. Like James is, I don't know. He's we've known each other for what thirty five years or something like that. And I love him. He's my other family. The other people I work with, they're they're part of my family. And you know, a lot of the performance that I've adopted them. Riley Reed's my poro daughter, and James Dean is my poro son, and you know, <laughs> as well as Dana Diamond, too. They're really great people and fun to be around. And you always have interesting conversations, and we're making stuff. We're trying to, to do something. And that's, you know, my, my husband said the other day, he goes, honey, you just like to make things. That's all. You just, you just, you just enjoy making stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I do. I have to say, I really enjoyed your roles when you were working with Michael Nin. I thought some of those were terrific. Uh, I hear Michael is shooting again. I heard he was shooting the other day. So I know that he was doing a lot of stuff like, I know, on the photo gallery side and everything, but I, I hear that he's shooting again. Yeah, he's, he's somebody that can always bring, you know, amazing stuff to life. He's uh, certainly the best art director I think I've ever seen. Although Brad... Uh, Brad Armstrong gives him a good run sometimes, you know, Brad says, I work for Stormy Daniels a lot, too. She's a key. I, as her caterer, I started cooking, you know, because we don't have the budgets we used to have. And we all end up doing more stuff. So I ended up, believe it or not, I, I cook for my food. 
you know, I go in, we do the, the paperwork and like props or specialty outfits if they're needed or, you know, and uh, get the bedrooms ready or something like that. And then I make breakfast for everybody and then make sure all the paperwork's done and change out the stuff for the next scene and make sure all the pops are there. And then at some point we have a dinner. And uh, Stephen St. Croix actually suggested me as, as the cook for Stormy. <laughs> So, so check this out. Georgina Spelvin started out as the cook, and she became a porn star. I started out as a porn star and became a cook. <laughs> and I say cook because I'm certainly not a chef, but, you know. And uh, I think it's the mama in me. I like to take care of everybody and make sure everybody gets something to eat and, you know, try and try and give them terribly terribly unhealthy options as well as really really healthy options so if you want to eat really well and be healthy you can usually do that on my set um i usually have vegetarian stuff i'm a veg last time we talked you were going over to china quite a bit are you still making those trips and doing the education stuff over there you betcha you betcha i leave again on uh september the 15th i suppose i was on the 8th but they 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 canceled the first uh three days of class so we're just i'm teaching just in two places over there so, yeah, it continues to be most most awesome. And my son travels with me, and he does the demonstrating part. I mean, I, you know, I uh, talk and lecture and, and do a little bit of demonstration, but he does the hands-on stuff. I mean, you know, when you're talking about relating with a man, there's only so much a woman could do. So he, he handles that, that part of it. And we're, we're very happy and thankful to still be able to be a part of that reaching out teaching people how to make a connection. I think it's basically what we're, what our intent is, enriching, enriching their lives. And unfortunately, we, we're still spending all of our time speaking with the women and it, it has to branch out so that we talk to the men as well. You know, I'm, I'm hoping a lot of stuff that, that we teach the women and they are able to bring home and, uh, you know, inspire their husbands to, to try it out. So uh, that's our hopes and that's, that's, what we intend to happen but again there's you can't make anyone change as we know that uh the person has to want to change and uh, that's why we also teach a lot of self-love because uh, especially with the older couples the ability for couples to change their patterns uh, sometimes is very very tough so, so we teach a lot of masturbation too which is really really you know it's it's so that you're able to have sexual satisfaction and, and not have to rely on another unwilling partner, you know, for that. I think it's really, really good messages to the uh, the whole Chinese population over there. You know, they're, they're so smart and upwardly mobile, and it feels like they're in junior high right now, and they're just... They're just starting to really learn about all this stuff. Of course, they know how to have sex. You know, um, that's obvious by the numbers. But <laughs> yeah, they've been pretty in- successful at that part. <laughs> yeah, but enjoyable sex, um, sex that that both parties uh, relish. That it's not just a you know a physical release. That there's actually a connection and elevation, and you know the women get to orgasm as well, and all of those kinds of things. It's 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 exciting, and you know I certainly hope that we've been helping. That sounds great, and I'm so glad that you're still doing that. That's terrific. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. We're 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 lucky we get to travel and to meet so many people, and and to have that experience. It's really awesome. 
How did you get your start in acting? In adult or mainstream? Either one. I'll give you both then. I moved from Rockford, Illinois to Southern California in 1982. And I was at the time managing a record store. I don't know if you remember Musicland. It was, they didn't even have record stores anymore. But I walked into one of the stores out in California and said, I would love to live out here and work out here. They needed a troubleshooter. They hired me immediately. They gave me nine stores that I was in charge of. I, I came out on a, on a short trip. I never went back home. I had everything that was in my suitcase with me. In my mind, it was going to be California. It's free and easy and people, they hang out on the beach and it's, you know, I, I didn't think of the financial aspect of it. So I was working 70 hours a week, busting my butt and not able to pay my bills in order to live in a, a decent apartment. And, you know, it's just not happening. So I got out a newspaper, answered an ad for uh, bachelor parties said, well, all you had to do was go in and ask for bachelors. And I thought, well, I can do that. And it was really good money. So my boyfriend and I, he drove me to this, this bachelor party. I had my little CD or not CD, but a cassette recorder, carried it in. I walked into the room and it was full of men. And I hadn't thought the thing through. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I can't get naked in front of a bunch of strange men. I can't do this. I ended up leaving the party, running out. They beat my boyfriend up. It was just a nightmare. So I thought, okay, this is not this is not going to bring me an extra money. Answered an ad next for figure modeling with Jim South at World Modeling Agency. And I started doing figure modeling. I did that for three months, starting in September of 1983. And I was continually asked if I wanted to be in commercial films. I thought commercial meant toothpaste, you know, pearl drops and like, yeah, I'll do it. And then I found out it was sex on film. And I, I said, I, I would, you know, this is not the kind of girl I am. And I had the same stereotype image as a lot of people did at the time that the girls that did it were drug addicts and hookers. And, you know, I just, I had no clue as to what the real business was like. So I turned it down for several months. And finally, I met this beautiful woman one day who was intelligent, articulate, could read. <laughs> she was reading her script out loud. I ended up taking her to lunch, and she gave me her, her little rundown, her rules, what she did, what she didn't do, how she felt about it, what she charged. And she was so beautiful and intelligent, just wonderful. She had this energy in life that I thought, this is not the type of girl that I thought did porn. I, I've got a, a wrong conception here. And so I went back to my agent, and I said, okay, I'll do this but here are my rules. And he laughed. <laughs> he said, you're not going to get that much money. You don't get script approval. You don't get cast approval. This is not going to happen. And I said, well, then I'm not going to do it. If I'm going to do it, I want to be comfortable. I enjoy sex, but I need to, I need to have my, my healthy boundaries here. And two weeks later, uh, a man and a woman by the name of David fell on a marsh were casting for a film they had a quarter of a million dollar budget shooting on the island of Kauai. They wanted an unknown actress to play the leading role. I met with them. They hired me instantly, agreed to all my rules, did my first, well, I didn't do my first film. After I agreed to do it, I went home and I thought, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? I'm going to be the lead in a movie. I've never acted in my life except doing plays in my garage. 
and sex on film, I don't know. So my agent set me up with a loop, which was an eight millimeter film, no sound. And I did it and I had a blast and it was a good time. There was no dialogue. There was no nothing. It was just pure, simple and raw. And so I thought to myself, okay, I can do this. I went to Hawaii, did my first film, had a hell of a time doing dialogue. Not that I couldn't memorize my dialogue or deliver my dialogue. I was petrified of the microphone. I was fine having sex on film. Don't ask me to talk. <laughs> One of my actors, my leading men, uh, helped me through that. And I continued to do films for the next two years and 11 months. I decided to finish my adult film career. It was time to move on. And I thought, well, Cam, I'm going to be a mainstream actress now. So I hired... I went through, there's a list called, a store called Samuel French in Los Angeles, and they have lists of casting directors and agents and everybody that you can think of, and there's little stickers that you put on envelopes. So I had headshots made up, and I bought the little stickers, and I put them on the envelope, and I, I took the titles of my adult films and changed them up a little bit so my resume would be a little bit beefier. And I was in the movie Poonies, which was an adult film. So on my resume, it said I was in Goonies. Uh, another one was Blame It On Ginger was my adult title. Changed it to Blame It On Rio. So I just made up this, this resume. I just, you know, I, I'd been in films. I just changed the titles a little bit. And I had an audition for a film. The film was called Wild Man. And I walk in and I have my, my auditions. And there's, you know, just the casting director and I get a call back. They put me on tape the second time and they called me back the third time. And I walk in and there's a room full of people, you know, a big conference table and I'm petrified. And I look at the head of the table and Freddie Lincoln, who was uh, in The Last House on the Left and then went on to do, he was an actor for years, went on to direct adult films. Freddie had directed me in oh, probably a half a dozen of vivid movies. He was moving out of the adult film industry in the mainstream. We both said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I was cast in Wild Man. During the filming of that, a director by the name of Rick Sloan, who produced and directed all of the Vice Academy series, came on the set, saw my, my, my work, and cast me in the first Vice Academy film. And from there on, it just continued to to snowball. And I've been doing mainstream films now for uh, 29 years. Uh, so I just, I and then, well, I saw myself on film. I should backtrack for a second here. Uh, when I saw myself on film for the first time in an adult movie, it was back when we still had premieres. We had the red carpet. You dressed up. It was at the Pussycat Theater. I walked in. I'm all excited. And the first you know, I see my acting, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm awful. I'm so bad. This is, I don't belong here. And then I saw myself giving a blowjob in a shower, and I thought, well, I look really stupid with a dick in my mouth. This is just not, something's got to change here. So I enrolled at the Beverly Hills Playhouse with Milton Casellas uh, in 1987, I believe. 87 or 88, and uh, stayed there for six years. Worked on scene studies, worked on, on plays, worked on my acting career, really learned 
to be comfortable with myself and learned how much fun it was to play another character, to say the things that I would normally not be comfortable saying, to behave a way that I wasn't normally comfortable behaving. You know, all those little things that you do in your head, you you know, let's say something happens and you have a conversation and you get done with it and you get in your car and you're going, I should have said this and I should have said that and I, why didn't I do this and I should have stood up myself more and all the blah, blah, blahs. On film with a script and a character, I was able to develop that character, grow it into an entire person that, and that had all of the qualities that I wasn't always comfortable having in myself. And it was the most amazing experience ever. I got to be anybody I wanted to be anybody I wanted to be and do anything I wanted to do without feeling self-conscious. So that's a very long answer to a simple question. When it comes to that woman who gave you all that advice, who was that? Do you remember? Everyone asks me that. She had red hair. I want to say it was Desiree Cousteau, but I think Desiree had brown hair. So for some reason, the, the name Desiree stands out in my head. Um, I'm actually working on my autobiography right now, and I'm hunting down different people, including Jim South, to ask who that girl was. <laughs> what was that first movie, the one that was set in Kauai? The first movie I did, we actually ended up shooting two films um, intertwined you know, at the same time, and it was uh, Surrender in Paradise and a little bit of Hanky Panky. And if you watch Surrender in Paradise, as I told you earlier, I moved here. I came with a suitcase to visit family members. And I had pretty much everything I owned in that suitcase, including my red prom dress. In the film, Surrender of Paradise, you you get to see me in my red prom dress. (laughs) (laughs) I had a very limited wardrobe supply, and we had to bring our own wardrobe. (laughs) All right, I'm wearing my prom dress, I guess. (laughs) So those films came out in 84, and looking at your resume, I mean, it looks like when you decided to dive in, you went in headfirst, because there are so many other movies in 84 and 85, it just looks like when you started working, you didn't stop. You know, it was really an amazing time for me. There were very few adult films being made at that time. I'm in, as best as my memory will, will remember, <laughs> um, there were, you know, maybe eight to ten films made per month. And most of them at that point in time, in 84, almost everything, they were shot in either 8mm or 35mm. The word spread that there was, you know, somebody that was new and fun and energetic and liked what they did. And I was up for pretty much every role that came up. Um, I, I turned down, you know, quite a few films. I ended up doing, in that two-year and 11-month period, 69 adult movies which sounds like a lot, but, you know, I, I, I meet girls today in the adult film industry and they'll do three, they don't call them films anymore because they don't make many films, but they'll, oh, I did three scenes today. They don't even know the names of the movies. So they, they, in, in reality, they can do three movies in a day. You know, they're just in one scene and it's basically just gonzo and they'll do little wraparounds. But, uh, I was fortunate enough to come in when uh, we had 35 millimeter and big productions and, and they would actually rather than do what they do today, which is take, you know, all right, we're going to have these seven sex scenes and we'll do a wraparound. We had movie scripts. We had 110 page scripts and there was, it, it, there was all the dialogue. And then let's say page, you know, five, 
there would be one little three word things, sex scene here, and then there'd be more dialogue. And that, so it, it, the sex scenes were not written out. They weren't scripted. They, it just said sex scene here. <laughs> and so I, I got the opportunity to, to act. And as I said, I, I wasn't very good, but I had a natural, natural presence. You know, I could, I could be comfortable in front of that camera. So I think that helped a lot until I, I perfected my craft there. And then in late 1984, Stephen Hirsch and uh, Lonnie Sanders asked me if I would have a meeting. And we sat down at Gladstone's on the beach in Malibu. And Stephen presented his idea. He wanted me to be the first contract girl, uh, go back to the old movie days where, you know, you were contract under a studio and I would own a piece of each of the film and I would be able to help with the writing and the scripting and casting and, and everything. And it was just, it, it was the beginning of, of VHS films. And I was working, I, my contract for Vivid, I did 12 films per year. So I did films, and I ended up doing 17 movies for them total. But it was almost as though when you went into the adult store, wherever you went into, and they, you bought a VCR, there was a Ginger Lynn section. I was on every cover and every, it seemed as though I was in every major movie that was made at the time. You know, there were many more films that were made, but I chose ones that, that I wanted to do that excited me that that I got my, made my heart beat fast. And, you know, I, I love a thrill. I love a thrill. So I, I did choose my, my roles and my films more carefully than I would have thought at that age. You know, I, I wasn't very worldly at all. I came from a small town in Rockford, Illinois, and I had a sense of, of who I was and what I wanted to do. And so I was very, very fortunate that I had that thought process and I was able to say, you know what, I, I, I'm not doing that one. This one I want to do. That one I, I don't. And I have, I'm proud of 90% of the films that I've ever done. Yeah, there was a time there where it was just getting a little silly, where it was like Ginger's Private Party, Ginger on the Rocks, I Dream of Ginger, just every title. Uh, right. You own the title, which was just crazy. Like, I can't think of any other actress at that time where it was, you know, the, the women's names were the characters, you know, exactly. Debbie Does Dallas. Right, exactly. And I had, you know, all of the, David wanted my name in as many titles as possible, and they banked their company on my name. So rather than go, oh, it's a David production, it was a ginger production. And you kind of became a brand name as well when it came to the Lins, because after a while I became kind of confused <laughs> when there was the Amber Lynn and the Porsche Lynn, as well as the ginger Lynn. Then there, I mean, I, I actually did a search yesterday on Rame, and I, I couldn't find it, but as, there are dozens and dozens of Lynns, and it's it's kind of funny. My real name is Ginger Lynn Allen, and the reason I chose to use Ginger Lynn is the side of me that is uninhibited, that is wild, that is fun, that is crazy, that little piece of my pie, if you think of me as a whole big pie, that piece, that most people don't allow themselves to live out. It's just your fantasy. I allowed myself to be, to take that piece of me, that uninhibited, sexual, wild, crazy, sexy, fun girl, and create an entire character out of it. And it's funny, when I was growing up, 
I used to, uh, I had an imaginary friend named Sony. And whenever Sony was bad, and whenever I, whenever I got in trouble, it was Sony. You know, if I, you know, did, did something I wasn't supposed to do, uh, it was Sony. You know how she is. And as I, as I got older, whenever I was in trouble, my, my mother called me. It was Ginger Lynn. And so I thought, well, that's the side of me <laughs> that is feisty and fun. So I'm going to take that Ginger Lynn who gets in trouble and use that as, as my, my character's name. So I, I came into it and went, that's my real name. That's what I'm using. That's when I'm in trouble. And I'm probably going to get myself in a little trouble doing these movies when, when my family finds out. So it is a little bit rebellious. You were in so many movies, which I would now consider classics, like things like Slumber Party or the first New Wave Hookers. What was that like working on New Wave Hookers? What was Gregory Dark like to work with? Greg is an odd man. He's very intense, doesn't laugh a lot. There weren't a lot of, you know, chummy, chummy, oh, let's do this next. Greg had a vision, and he wanted this, and he wanted this, and he wanted this. But once he started the scene, my favorite thing about working with Greg was all of the dialogue, everything that was uh, scripted, he was on it. He was, he, he was like the first real director I worked with. He, he was just amazing. Um, but when it came to the sex, he gave you a general outline and then let you go. It was no, all right, we're doing position A, B, C, flop over here, flip over there. It was, here's what you're feeling. Here's what you want. Go and get it. And they actually shot around what we did, which was unbelievable. You know, I didn't have to open up to the camera here and, oh, we need this shot and your leg up on, you know, around your neck. Greg let you go for it. And he was brilliant at casting. Everybody in the film, the characters that they played, they were real characters. They, you know, they, the actors really gave performances. But the only thing I remember about Greg Offset was we went to dinner one night. And as I said, he's not the, the most jovial guy that you'll ever meet. And it took him about an hour to try and ask me out. <laughs> there was every hem and haw and, and stutter and stummer and... <laughs> And uh, he finally got it out, and, and, and I felt so bad. I'm like, mm, I, I adore you, but I don't think this would work. So we never went out. But he was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to work with and gave me a taste of what real filmmaking was like. Same thing with uh, Kirby Stevens in the Taboo series. There, were, there was a lot of meat to what he was doing. and You couldn't get away with the Taboo series today. You, you couldn't, you know, it just... Things that, they, that you couldn't get away with. And he was fabulous to work with. Hal Freeman was the director for Slumber Party. And I, I have never watched Slumber Party. And the reason is, I did my first film in December of 1983 on the island of Quiet at Surrender in Paradise. And came back to Los Angeles, continued to post for magazines. And I got a phone call one morning. I had an answering service. My parents didn't have my phone number. It was an emergency. You need to call your family right away. And I'm thinking someone's died. I called my father. And I think the words out of his mouth were something to the uh, effect of, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and the cat was out of the bag. So it was, it was a very difficult time. I'm very, very close to my father. He actually passed recently. But 
Um, my father and I have always been very close, and it broke my heart. He said, you're disowned from the family. We don't want you talking to your sister or your stepbrothers. Your grandfather's rolling over in your grave. Don't, don't come home for Christmas. You know, we're done with you. And it was just like, oh, my God, I never thought I would lose my family over my choices. I was raised to do what I believed in, never do anything I didn't want to do. Don't judge people. I had these these things instilled in me that I was living out. You know, I was living what I'd been taught. And my my family completely just, they abandoned me. They abandoned me. They They were done with me. And so I went on a, you know, it was the 80s. I went on a little cocaine binge for about three days. And during that time, I sat down and I wrote my father a three page or three, I don't know how many page letter. I wrote him this letter explaining who I was and how I came to be and the lessons he taught me and how I believed in those. And this is the woman that I am today. And I've made these decisions in good conscience. And, and I don't understand why you're judging me. It, I, I'm, I'm a little lost here. And I ended it basically saying that if you're going to judge me for my choices, then I don't, I don't know if I want you as my father. You're not the man that, that raised me. You know, this is completely against everything you've taught me. And I had a really tough time, and, and I called Suze Randall. Suze Randall shot me for Penthouse. She was my first photographer, and I told her, you know, I'm fucking up. You know, I, I, I'm not in a good place right now, and I don't know what to do. And Suze came over to my house, and she brought me a joint. And we sat down, and we smoked a joint. And she said, Ginger, you can be anything you want to be. If you don't want to do this, get out. If you're good, if you are going to do this, get your shit together. These drugs are going to kill you. They're going to fuck up your career. They're going to, you're going to die. This is not where you want to be or what you want to be doing. And you need to incorporate. You need to take this as a business. You need to, you need to think about your future. You need to save your money. She really sat down and gave me the tools to continue in the business. And the reason I, I tell the story is because the next day I was to, to film for Hal Freeman and we shot Surrender or no Slumber Party, Photo Flash. We shot four films at the same time. And had it not been for Sue's, that wouldn't have happened. And Hal, even in the condition I was in, you know, which I mean, it wasn't bad. I just, you know, had slept in a few days, took me in knew that I was going through a tough time and helped me to do the things that I needed to do and to get back on track. He was an amazing man to work with and I will always, always miss him. When you were still Ginger Lynn before you kind of reclaimed the Ginger Lynn Allen in uh, the late 80s, what were some of your favorite films? Definitely New Wave Hookers. Uh, The Graffenberg Spot was one of my favorites. Girls on Fire was fantastic. And Pleasure Hunt. Oh, my God. I loved both of the Pleasure Hunt movies. I don't know if you had a chance to see either of those, but they were, uh, I can't remember his last name right now. But, again, a, a real director. You know, what was happening at that point, that time in the adult film industry is real directors were going into adult films. It wasn't, you know, Joe Blow with his, his camera going, I'm going to make a porn. These were real, dedicated, trained directors and filmmakers. I'm just so grateful that I had that opportunity. All of the ones I shot in Hawaii were, they weren't the best films I made, but 
the quality of, of, of the, the cast and the crew and what they did with what they had was, was amazing. I, I'm not going to say none of the vivid movies vivid were more on the campy, you know, let's, let's mass produce films. We're going to do one a month. Uh, they brought, you know, we started shooting on VHS. Uh, we had, you know, Bruce seven, love him to death. Wouldn't let him direct my dog in a movie. <laughs> God bless his soul. You know, Bruce was the kind of director that went, okay, here's, here's a case of, of uh, baby oil and a tarp and some dildos. Go for it. <laughs> and a lot of our saving grace on the Vivid Films was our writer, Penny Antine. Penny Antine wrote a lot of the films. I want to say Scotty Cox directed several of the first Vivid Films. Um, but they were a whole, it was a whole different ball game when you went from 35 millimeter to VHS, you know, the, the quality wasn't there. It, it was, it was guerrilla filmmaking. You know, we didn't have the, I had the luxury of, of, you know, two weeks for a movie. I had the luxury of, of spending, you know, the movies took time and now I'm doing films in three days with a 60 page script and much more elaborate sex scenes or not. I shouldn't say elaborate, drawn out <laughs> and it, it did become a little bit more okay we need we need these these four positions you still get in I got in trouble with so many directors um I had one director I can't remember who it was that actually fired me because he kept saying open up the camera open up the camera I'm like it doesn't feel good when I open up the camera <laughs> do you want me to really have an orgasm or do you want me to fake it and look good I, I'm here to have fun. <laughs> you said that when you first started, you were kind of afraid of the microphone. What got you over that fear? You know, Jerry Butler was my, my leading man in Surrender in Paradise. And the first day of filming, we shot a sex scene first. And then it was later in the day. And all I had to do was run along a little path, a little pair of, I had on dolphin shorts and a little gray shirt that I still remember that remember in the eighties when they would slice up your shirts and make them kind of coy. <laughs> I had this little shirt on and Jerry Butler comes up on a motorcycle and starts harassing me and, you know, talking about my body and coming on to me in a, in a not so nice way. And I was just supposed to tell him to leave me alone. And we shot, for hours, I could not. I was fine with the running, fine with the with everything. I could not get the words to come out of my mouth. Literally, no words came out of my mouth. Every time I looked up, and I knew the microphone, you know, because there's a guy running alongside of me with a boom, and I, I I just couldn't get the words to come out. So that night, Jerry asked me if I would come over to his condo, and I said sure. So I went over and we start talking and he's asking me questions about my family and my grandfather and my dad and my sister, my brothers and getting into all of these, you know, personal details. And I'm thinking, what a nice guy. He cares. He wants to know about me. He began to degrade my family, say really nasty things about my dad, my grandfather, and my sister. And I'm just going, what the fuck? And the next thing I know, he throws me down in the bed pins me down by the arm, starts ripping my clothes. I'm fighting now. I am kicking. I am screaming. I am go I'm thinking he's going to rape me. Not just had sex with him earlier in the day. This is a whole different situation. And it was 
awful. It was just very traumatic and it, it, not a good experience. He stops, stands up, throws my script at me and says, now do your dialogue. I fucking hated this man. I'm like, what a dick. You just made me feel like a piece of shit. You just cut down my family that, you know, and I was so angry and so raw that the dialogue just came out. I, I wasn't self-conscious. I wasn't thinking about what I was saying. I was saying it because I meant it and I was angry and I, and it, it, it was a little, Jerry was an actual, actually an excellent actor and he studied and he practiced and it was, it was a little uh, acting technique <laughs> that was not appreciated at the time, but very effective. And I never had difficulty after that. Never. I mean, he pushed me to, to the limit where, you know, I, I was fighting and crying and, and then just through the script of me nonchalant, he was back to, you know, the, the Jerry Butler that I'd been working with all day. Just the nicest guy ever. Wow. Yeah. It was a good lesson for me. I think you two made up afterwards. You know what? We not only made up, but Jerry was my first first porn crush. He actually, he carved our names in a tree. He made me a necklace out of seashells. He bought me a pre-engagement gift, and I still have it. It's this tiny little gold hand, it's a pendant, holding a ruby. And that was our pre-engagement gift. guest or, or ring or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I thought I was in love. I thought, oh, my God, I'm not only doing porn, having a great time making money, but I've met the man of my dreams. He's fantastic. Now, Jerry finished filming before I did. He had another project back in, in New York, so he flew back. I stayed and finished the film. And when I got back to Los Angeles, from Kauai, he met me at the airport. I was so excited. Like, oh, my man is here. And he comes up and he's wearing like a, a t shirt with armpit stains. And he, he just, he looked tough and rough. Arthur, his character in Surrender in Paradise, was an ex con, but he was built and buff and had a little edge to him, but he was, a, he was kind of a cool guy. The Jerry Butler that I met at the airport had a New York accent. He was he was obnoxious. He was he was not the person that I'd fallen for. Jerry stayed in character the entire shoot, the entire two weeks we filmed in Hawaii. He was in character. I met the real Jerry Butler when we got back to Los Angeles. I, I and I I didn't know that people did that. You know, once the cameras are turned off, I'm back to Ginger. And uh, Jerry didn't do that, so I broke up with him. We, you know, I, I broke up with him. I, I just because he was too rough for me, just too much. I, I like bad boys, but you know the whole New York East Coast accent, mob kind of. You know, I'm thinking he's like in the mob kind of a guy. I was like, no, this is too scary. Not my guy. And it was funny. He wrote a book called Raw a few years later, and in in my memories. You know, I mean, I, I still have the necklace he made me. I still have that little hand with the ruby in it. I have photos. I have all of these these memories and, and things I've saved over the years. Little, you know, wonderful things. And Jerry wrote his book. And the one thing he wrote about me was that, was that I was an overrated tip squeak. That was it. <laughs> so here I'd fallen in love. And I was just an overrated pipsqueak to him. But I'm going to go back and say it was because I dumped him and his ego couldn't take it. <laughs>
<laughs> when was the first time that you worked with Chuck Vincent? You know, I was looking that up the other day, and I only remember working with, I don't remember working with him on anything adult. Do you know if I did? Not that I can find, no. I couldn't find it either. I think, I believe the one and only time I worked with Chuck Vincent was on Cleo and Leo, or Cleo Leo. What was that experience like for you? Again, Midwestern girl, California, I was comfortable in. New York scared me to death. It was fast. Everybody was moving. When they bump into you on the street, they don't say, excuse me. They just keep going. And, you know, it was, I, I was way out of my element. And uh, we got there, and I met uh, Janie, met uh, Veronica Hart, Jane Hamilton. And she was just the most wonderful, almost like a, a a coach. She was like like a, a, a an instant friend who took me under her wings and guided me through things, helped me with my comedy, helped me with my timing, and we were having a blast filming. Chuck, I don't remember him being overly directorial. He was just kind of there. He was the quiet director, didn't yell. I uh, gave very basic direction and let the actors take it where we wanted to be. And on the second or third day of filming, there's a scene where Veronica and I were sitting at a table. She's been, you know, reincarnated or the, the, the soul of the man that died is in her body now. And we're at this little cafe and we're having a conversation and I started to not feel good. And I, I remember trying to get my dialogue out and I'm supposed to be bubbly and kind of a dizzy, you know, carefree kind of girl. And it was all I could do. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't, I, I couldn't remember my, my dialogue. I finished the scene, which is one of my favorite scenes. You know, I, I was pulling it out of my ass and I collapsed. They took me to the ER. I had 104 temperature. I had some awful, awful bug that had gotten me. And this was, you know, one of my, my first mainstream films. And here I am in New York and I've got all this responsibility and I don't want to do anything that I don't do the best that I can possibly do it. I want to be good at whatever I do. And I remember plowing through the rest of the movie, sicker than a dog and giving it, it was one of the most difficult shoots that I've ever been on because I, I had to, I had to make this work and I was not at my best by any means. It was one of those things I had done, as I said, guerrilla filmmaking where I had to, you know, memorize all my dialogue and shoot it all quickly and get everything done in three days. And in Cleo Leo, I had the opportunity to take the time, but I didn't have all of my, my, my resources. I was sicker than a dog. And after finishing and watching my performance, I, I knew that, if I set my mind to it, I could do anything I wanted to do, anything, because I should have been in the hospital. You know, I, I was on, they gave me IVs and, you know, antibiotics and uh, all kinds of things. And, it, you know, I had strep throat. It was, uh, and, and I pulled it off and I pulled it off. What was that transition like for you? You, you talked a little bit about um, Wild Man. But once you're done with that and once you're making films like Cleo Leo and uh, Vice Academy and those, was that how was that transition for you from adult into more mainstream films? You know, it's funny. In the independent films that I did, in the, the Vice Academies, in the, the Chuck Vincent Cleo Leo, in 
uh, I don't know my, my resume in front of me, but a lot of the films I did in the beginning, they were independent and they were smaller productions and it was, it was easy. It was comfortable. I felt like I belonged. It was, it was where I was supposed to be. Uh, so the transition and everybody was happy to have me there. There were no attitudes. There was nothing weird, nothing uncomfortable. And my first big audition was for Beverly Hills Cop 2 or 3. Uh, was it 3? I can't remember. It might have been 2. And Tony Scott was the director. Uh, Suze Randall actually got me the audition. And I was supposed to play this actress or this uh, this waitress in, in a, a cafe who mistakes one of the leading men for President Ford. And it's a lighthearted, funny, silly little scene. I, you know, I hired a private acting coach, and I worked for weeks on this. And I get into the audition. I'm in the waiting room, and the secretary. I'm wearing this little white dress that had a triangle cut out, so my stomach was exposed. And the woman says to me, uh, "Are you wearing underwear?" This is this is this is Paramount, I think. <laughs> and, and and it was it was I, I didn't know what to say, and I, so I said no, I wasn't. And she said, "Hold on a minute," and she leaves the room, and she comes back and she says, "Well, we don't have any underwear for you. You're going to have to go in as is, okay?" So I'm already thinking, you know, this is different in porn. Nobody ever asked me if I was wearing underwear. Nobody ever had a casting couch. Nobody ever asked me to get naked uh, except to himself for my Polaroids or unless I was shooting. But, you know, in an interview or an audition, you, you know, there was no, no boundaries were crossed, not one whatsoever. I never had a problem in, in the adult film industry. And I get into the actual room and Tony Scott is there. There are two other men in the room and I believe a woman. And the first thing Tony Scott says to me is, um, can we get a topless po- or a nude Polaroid? And I, I, I said, no, <laughs> I don't think that we need to do that. And he said, well, how about a topless? And I said, no. And he, he was a little bit, he kind of brushed me off and went, fine, let's just read for the role. Okay. And it, it, he was not nice. And I, I, you know, had rehearsed this for weeks. I was ready. I played it with all my gusto and I was spot on and felt good about it. And we get done. And I go through the first reading and he says, you know what? I want you to think of yourself as the biggest slut in the world. You want to fuck everybody you see. That's the character I want you to play. And I stood there and I, I started to cry. And I, I said, you know what? I, I don't think I'm right for this role. And I left. And I still have the little... uh thing that they give you when you drive onto the gate at the studio. It was my first pass to get into a major studio. And I, I saved it and I showed it to my grandma and, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm at Paramount now. It was one of the most embarrassing, uh, awful experiences I've ever had. May, you know, they had no intention whatsoever of recasting me in the film. They wanted Ginger Lynn in there and it was a joke. You know, let's get her in here. Let's get her naked. The sides meant nothing. They had no intentions of hiring me. And it really, uh, took me aback. It was like a slap in the face with mainstream Hollywood. Here I'm thinking, yeah, I've gone from, you know, small roles in B movies to leads in B movies. Now I'm moving up to small roles in A films. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm moving up. This is going to happen for me. And it just punched me in the stomach. It was just, it was, it was not a good experience, but I didn't give up. I continued to study. 
Uh, I continued to pursue other roles, and and they came. There were several occasions. I worked on a film called Leather Jackets with Bridget Fonda, Carrie Elways, Chris uh, Penn, and nothing happened during the audition. Everything was fine. And there's a scene where I am in full geisha makeup. I've got the white face. I've got the little red lips outlined and the little, you know, rosebud mouth. I've got a black wig on. And we're up on the stage. And the director says something. I can't remember what it is for the life of me. So derogatory. So the way that you would talk to a dog that you didn't like. It was, it was, you know, something, you know, about getting my tits and my ass out. It's time for that. Or, and, and again, it was so disrespectful. I, I'm not a prima donna. I'm not a diva. I never have been. I walked off the set in tears, went into my trailer and uh, called my agent and said, I'm, I, I don't deserve to be treated like this. I, you know, I've never, I'm not doing this. So they called and it, it finally ended up the director. Uh, I, got a knock on the door and there was a giant bouquet of flowers and a card and an apology and we didn't mean it. And, uh, it, I found that that mainstream Hollywood does not or did not. And sometimes still does not have the respect for anyone who has been in porn as they should have. They see them as a certain type of person. Uh, that has only been my experience twice. I've done dozens of films with the directors and producers and everyone has been fantastic. But during that, those early days and that transition, there were occasions where I just went, you people are fucked up, at least in porn. It's all on the table. There's no bullshit. There's no, you, you don't, they don't treat you like that. Everybody's there to have a good time and do the best job that they can. But I didn't give up, and I, I kept looking at the bright side and finding myself in positions where I was, you know, surrounded by better people and better productions. You know, I don't want to focus on the negative here, but I think one of the most traumatic experiences I had was on, uh, I, I did a Wing Commander series. I was in Wing Commander 3 and 5, and... One of my scenes is with Mark Hamill. Well, a lot of my scenes were with Mark Hamill, and we're supposed to kiss. And we're getting ready. We've, you know, we've shot for weeks, and we're doing our stuff, and it's, it's, everything's fine. My grandma's on the set, and everything's going well, and, and everybody's wonderful. And the one of the production assistants or one of the ADs pulled me aside, and we were in a little, a little like stairwell out back. It, you know, we wasn't in the main studio. It was like the the you know, escape route that you would leave the studio. And, and she said to me, I don't know how to tell you this, but Mark doesn't want to kiss you unless you have an AIDS test. Oh, Jesus. And I stood there for a minute with my mouth drop o- dropped open. And I, you know, first of all, the ignorance of that, you, you, you don't catch AIDS from a kiss. I don't have AIDS. Never, you know, it was just one of those, again, where mainstream people view adult performers in a different way. And uh, they actually shut down the set, and I called my agent, of course, who said, that's fine, as long as he provides one as well. So, <laughs> so we both provided our, our HIV tests, and, uh, and it was just... You know, it, it was it was difficult in the beginning, but the more I worked, the more films that I performed in, the more characters I played, uh, the more people respected me and saw my talent and saw me as 
an actress, as a real actor, not some uh, token porn star we're throwing in the movie for ratings. You know, they really, I, I worked hard. I worked really hard on my craft. You know, I asked you what some of your favorite Ginger Lynn movies were. What were some of your favorite Ginger Lynn Allen films? I always go back to Bound and Gagged a Love Story. It was the first mainstream feature film that I had a leading role in that was released, released theatrically. And I worked with Karen Black. I worked with Chris Mulkey, Elizabeth Saltarelli, just some fantastic actors. The director and the producer were fantastic. And they gave me a role that I was able to take further than any other role I'd ever had. And they trusted me with it. And, you know, we had two weeks of rehearsal before filming, which I'd never had that opportunity before. And I'm really, really proud of my performance in Bound to Gag the Love Story. Um, then, of course, I've got to go to Rob Zombie. I've got to go to my my Devil's Rejects uh, character. And just working with Rob Zombie in itself is Oh my fucking God. Come on. It's Rob Zombie. <laughs> I love his work. I think he's brilliant. And, uh, you know, he sought me out. It wasn't, you know, my agent sent me out an audition and, you know, I got a call back. Rob sought me out and he's cast me in three of his films. I just finished 31 back in March. And then that as well, he cast me in the Lords of Salem, which, uh, for personal reasons I had to turn down. NYPD Blue was huge for me. It was huge. And then, my okay, my favorite television I've ever done, I was cast with a recurring role. I shot eight episodes. It was in Jerry Bruckheimer's uh, uh, series Skin. And I had just uh, the, the role of a lifetime. And unfortunately, after 11 episodes, the... The series was canceled. It didn't quite cut it for uh, network television. I think it was a little bit too much for network at the time, but it was an amazing experience as well. I did a film called God's Lonely Man that I'm pretty proud of. It was, uh, I can't remember, Frank von Zernick, I believe, directed it. That was wonderful. Oh, The Independent. Steve Kessler directed uh, with Domingo Rosslo and Jerry Stiller, Ben Stiller. Small role, but a wonderful experience. Yeah, that one was hilarious. You buzzing it? <laughs> Mayor Kitty Storm, right? Mayor Kitty Storm, yes. Yes. <laughs> Such a great character name. Oh, you know what else I worked in? Oh, the film that got Taft Hartley on was uh, Skin Deep with John Ritter. Skin Deep. So I, I went on, and this was, I wanted to be... I wanted to meet Blake Edwards so badly, wanted to meet him, wanted to work with him. And so I couldn't get in for an audition. My agent couldn't get me in. So being the resourceful girl that I am, I went to a an extra casting agency and said, I'd like to be an extra on this film. So they hired me as an extra on the film, I'm in this big party scene. I'm wearing a Nolan Miller gown, and Blake Edwards recognizes me in in the crowd, in in the, the extra group. And is it still raining? Yeah, it is. Uh, and brings me into uh, his his trailer and says, "All right, I want you to do some scenes with, with John. We're going to add a couple of extra scenes into the movie. They're not scripted." Uh, we had a, a scene in a bar where he picks up on me and, you know, none of it's left in the film, unfortunately, 
the opportunity to work with Blake Edwards and John Ritter was just amazing. Amazing. Um, and uh, I was up for, I, I went in um, on an audition for Casino, got a call back, got a screen test, and it was three months before they made their decision. I still have the original sides. The original character is not named Ginger. They ended up, it was down between me and Sharon Stone. I mean, and Sharon obviously got the role. They changed the character's name to Ginger. You know, I mean, it's just, I get so excited about opportunities and, and I love what I do and I love, I love acceptance and a lot of, a lot of the difficulty in the transition has been the stereotype image that people still have about adult performers. Did you find that more from like new Hollywood people or old Hollywood or was it the same across new, the board? Much, well... At that, Tony Scott at the time was not, I mean, Ridley was more, more well-known at the time. I, I, I think it was more in the main, in, in, in the bigger productions. Although I was cast in, in Young Guns 2, had a great role. I, 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 have, I have three weeks on the cutting room floor. <laughs> you know, I, Christian Slater steals Keeper Sutherland's watch. He has a crush on me, gives me the watch. We get run out of town. I fall down a flight of stairs. I've got all of these wonderful interactions with all of these different actors, different scenes. And I think they ended up having a four-hour movie and had, it, had to cut it down to two and uh, most, not just mine, but most of the female parts were, were edited down to nothing. They were, they were very small. Yeah. And then, oh, there was another movie that I was up for, a Clint Eastwood film. And I don't remember the name of the film, but I had met Clint Eastwood through Charlie Sheen on The Rookie, I believe it was. Clint called, like, what did he call me? He had a funny little name for me. And he always made fun. I was wear boots. I'm a, you know, cowboy boot or biker boot kind of a girl. Um, and I can't remember what he used to call me, but he was doing a film and it was a Western where there was a, a, a prostitute who was, her face was cut up. Right. Unforgiven. Unforgiven. Yes, yes, yes. I had up to my screen test again on that. And they called me, said I was too pretty. That I I didn't that I <laughs> that was the reason I didn't get cast in Unforgiven was I was too pretty. I guess if there's a good reason to not get cast, it might be that. But I'm going to take it. Yes, I've had some amazing opportunities, and uh, and not just opportunities, but have fulfilled so many of my dreams and performed in so many so many projects. I mean, I, I just have to updated my resume recently. I'm going. Wow, it's a lot of work. It's done a lot of work. Had a lot of fun in the film called Far Out Man with Tommy Chong. Wasn't the best film ever made. I studied acting at the Beverly Hills Playhouse with Tommy's wife. And Tommy wrote a film, but but Tommy wrote the film as we were making it. <laughs> we, we'd get to the set during the day. And Tommy was he's writing things out, you know, and, and typing them up. And, okay, here's what we're doing today. Sometimes there was no script at all. He'd just go, here's what I want the scene to be. <laughs> now, these days, are you kind of going back and forth between being Ginger Lynn and Ginger Lynn Allen? My Ginger Lynn days are pretty much over. I, uh, You know, I haven't done a film in, in almost a decade, you know, an adult film. Although 
I was looking at the, the database and they're still putting things out. And I'm like, I, I haven't filmed in 10 years, you know, but they, <laughs> they take scenes. And then you know, I didn't have, you know, in, in the beginning of my career, in those first two years that I worked, uh, I had an entertainment attorney. Everything was contractually gone through and, and each detail was, was sussed out. When I made my comeback uh, in 1999 for VCA, uh, things were, were a little bit different. When I made my comeback and I did a few films for, for companies other than VCA, I didn't have it in there that they couldn't use it in other movies. So there's, there's still stuff coming out that I did, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, and they'll put it out with a, a current release date. I just went to the um, adult film database and sent them an email saying, this movie was made, you know, here's the date here. You know, this was made this many years ago. You've got this out as a new release. Go, we just go by release dates. Uh, <laughs> so no, they're there. Ginger Lynn is retired. She's retired. Uh, I do still have my, my website, gingerlynn.com where I post my radio shows that I do. Uh, you can see photos and film clips and interviews and everything from way back when up until today. Uh, I have a another website. It's called gingerlinauctions.com where it's kind of like an, a, a lingerie eBay. I, I shoot current porn stars in their lingerie. Uh, and then we post them online and people bid on them, just like you would if you were buying a car on eBay. Uh, we put the, their personal lingerie up, and uh, so I'm more behind the scenes. I've become the photographer, the editor, the web person. Uh, I'm, I've got another website. Um, and I see that the thing is with the name Ginger Lynn, I will always own it. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that I've done. And people know me much more as Ginger Lynn than Ginger Lynn Allen. So I started painting about 20 years ago and I have a, a website called gingerlinart.com. I paint all the time, sell my paintings. And uh, so you can get a little piece of Ginger Lynn in, in, in my current state. <laughs> Tell me more about your radio show. I hosted, I started in 2002 with a, I went on, there was a man named Jason Seacrest. And uh, is it Jason Seacrest? There's there's an uh, an actor and a J- there's two different Jasons. Anyway, I was on a radio show and it was this man that I'd known for years, nicest guy ever, but always claimed to be straight, gayer than the day was long. And so I went on a show and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have to pretend you're straight. We all know you're not. And he had come out. And we had the best radio show ever. And I'm like, oh, my God, I love to do radio. I could do your job. <laughs> and the producer was listening, called me up and said, would you like to give it a shot? We'll give you one day a week. We'll give you Fridays. You'll have a two-hour show. And we'll see if you can hack it. So I started with KSX Radio, did that for a year. In the meantime, Playboy Radio was, was in full force. Playboy heard me on KSX and brought me in. I became their regular stand-in co-host. Anytime somebody didn't, you know, most shows had a host and a co-host, they brought me in. And I did that for over two years as a non-employee. You know, once a week I was in there doing somebody's show because, as you know, foreign stars are flaky. Um, (laughs) Not all of them. No, no. Some of us are not. Some of us are not. But they, uh, 
So they offered me a show, and, and Christy Cannon and I did our show for years together. Uh, last year, Playboy lost their contract to another company, and they, they were under bid. And so there is a different company running, you know, the one adult station on Sirius XM at this point in time. So I decided to start my own. Uh, it's called Blame It on Ginger. Uh, we recorded that for about a year and a half. And I moved to Vegas recently, so the show is on hiatus, but we are, I'm actually meeting with someone tomorrow uh, here in Vegas, and then uh, I won't say who, but there's a, a big radio station company in Los Angeles that I'll be meeting with in October about starting my show back up. And the show that I did, we had five different days, I did five days a week, and each day I had a different co-host. Uh, I had, yeah, so Nina Hartley was on every Monday, Tuesdays with somebody else, Wednesdays was Drew Delagrazzi, the uh, the comedian, Thursdays was Kelly Nichols, uh, there were aside five different co-hosts, and it turned out that the most well-loved, fabulous shows were when I mixed comedians with porn stars. Comedians are, are, are a funny lot. You know, they're great when it's their own show, put them on something else and get them out of their element. And they're hysterical. They don't know what to do. And so I combined adult performers and adult situations with the comedians. And so the new show that, that we're, we're pitching and uh, going to be going forward with actually, we've got two options. So it will happen one way or another. Uh, is is an adult comedy show. It's funny that you were scared of, of a microphone. Right? At one point. <laughs> right? And then the Playboy I did three to four hour shows five days a week. <laughs> you know, I got over that fear. I got over that fear. So what prompted you to start working on your autobiography? You know, I, I started it 25 years ago. And I would sit down and I would write a paragraph. I would write a chapter and I ended up having 37 chapters and over the years. And I, 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 I read what I wrote and it just, at the time it was who I was, but it's not who I am today. And I see, see things differently. Um, I recently moved to Las Vegas and I just thought, what's my next step? What, what I going to do? You know, I, I've accomplished so many of my goals and I continue to work on them on a daily basis, but what do I want to do next? And, uh, you know, if I type my name into a search engine, 380,000 sites come up. I read stuff about myself. I read uh, two days ago, my brother sent me uh, something from Twitter where the new rumor is that um, I dated Elvis Presley. <laughs> what was I, four? <laughs> and, and so there are so many miss rumors out there and, and non-truths. And, and I, I just, I have had such a full life and so many experiences that, that I want to share. And I, I want to, I want people to know what it was really like and how much fun I had and, you know, when it wasn't so fun and the emotions and the ups and the downs. And, and I just think that I have a story that very few people have. I went from, you know, a small town girl from Rockford, Illinois to, you know, a very well-known adult film star and made such a successful transition into the mainstream genre. And there are people who have done it, but I've done it consistently now for 
32 years I've worked in the entertainment industry and I've had, you know, all of, you know, I've been to prison. I've had, you know, good and bad relationships. I've dated Charlie Sheen. Um, you know, so there's, there's just a lot of stories that are out there that I want to put the truth to, and I want to, I want to share them with people. I want, I want you to, I want you to know me better. I want you to laugh. I want you to cry. I want you to feel, I want you to know what it was really like. And I want to take you on that journey, take you through it with me. I sat down about a month ago and said, okay, starting from scratch, doing it over. And Oh my God, it's, I, I, when I write a story, you know, I'll remember, okay, I'm going to write about this. I'm, I'm fine with writing my stories, but the difficulty I've run into is that a lot of the things that I'm writing about are so deep in my subconscious. When I go to sleep at night, I'm dreaming about them happening and I'm reliving them. And I started getting these major panic attacks. So I had to, I had to step back and find my voice. Um, I had to look at it because I was writing, uh, you know, childhood and, and my childhood was, was as, as dysfunctionally abnormal or normal as everybody else's. We've all got a story, but it was very difficult for me. And I, I found that I was subconsciously going back and reliving those moments. So now I'm stepping back and writing it from a little different perspective, which did you ever read the book "A Life Is a If Life Is a Bowl of Cherries"? Why am I in the pits? Was that Bombeck? Yes, yes, yes. And it's my thought process today, and I don't know if this is the way it will end up or not. Is more on that lighthearted. Here's the story. You make your own judgments. I'm not going to put my opinions on it. I'm going to tell you what it was like for me rather than, you know, I was right. I found that what I was doing was I was writing my childhood as a child, as a victim. I'm like, oh, that's not going to work. That's not, no. So I'm, I'm now just getting ready to delve back into it. I, I've had a couple of weeks to go, all right, that's over. I've already dealt with that. 40 years ago, don't need to go through it again, but I can tell it in a way that people can relate without being the victim. It just was what it was. I was wondering if you could tell me what was your appearance like on the dog whisperer? <laughs> uh, I, and the dog you're talking about is sitting right here. Um, that's Tank. Tank is my, my, my baby. I've had Rottweilers for the last 30 years. And, and Tank is the sweetest dog you will ever meet. If he knows you, he's just, he's big, he's dumb, he's so, uh, so stupid, I can't even explain. I mean, just really, honestly, dumber than dirt. But it's an endearing quality, and I wanted him to, he just, he has what they call fear, fear aggression. And so, no vet, it, it, I, there was one vet I had left in Los Angeles that agreed to see him. Um, you know, just for checkups and things. And really nice old man, deaf. He was like, you know, the, he, this is the guy that will deal with your dog. Took my dog in for his checkup, left him there. Uh, when I picked him up, they said, we're sorry, we will never see your dog again. He's out of control. And so I found a mobile vet that would come over and stick this long stick through my, my front door with a syringe on the end, sedate the dog, and then give him his 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 uh, checkup, and 
he's the guy, my, my vet said to me, you know what, I'm working with Caesar from the dog whisperer. I think he can really help your dog. So I meet with Caesar. My, if you've seen the episode, my son is in it. And I pull up in my SUV. I've got my dog crated in the back. Caesar asks me to drop the back tailgate, which I do. And the camera crew starts surrounding the car. Well, Tank goes ballistic. He's just not having anything to do with it. And so Caesar pulls the film crew back and he did something really interesting. He asked my son to sit on the back of the, the tailgate to sit by the crate. So my, my son sat there and then he said, no, I'm going to put my son in. And I'm, I'm going, no, no, my dog, you know, it's like a nine-year-old boy. My dog's going to get no. And Caesar said, trust me. And so he had both of the boys sit at the back of the, on the tailgate, the back of the car and just talk and ignore tank. And it calmed him down and he was able to be around the camera crews. And we went through a lot of different exercises Tank failed everything except for that, <laughs> except for the, <laughs> the car thing. You know, he just he he's just afraid of everybody, and so he attacks everybody. And Caesar was I, I met all of Caesar's dogs. He had a trailer that he drives around, and he had eight or nine dogs that are just all different breeds, all different shapes, all different sizes, and they know their place. They do exactly what they're told. They stay where they're supposed to be. It was it was like being in a, in a, some strange film where the dogs could, you know, talk and think and these dogs were perfect. Had absolutely no success with my dog whatsoever. Bottom line is Caesar says that I'm too nurturing and I need to be tougher with my dog. I am, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So my dog is still big, still dumb, still stupid and still sweet. back. Thanks to Ms. Hamilton and Ms. Lynn for taking the time to talk to us. And we're discussing Cleo Leo this week with our guest co-host, Jill Nelson. Now, there are a couple other films that are sort of similar in a way. And uh, I guess there was one that you brought to Mike's attention, Jill. Yeah, it was. Well, I reviewed it for um, my profile on Roberta Finley for Golden Goddesses. And it's called Angel on Fire, Angel Number 9. And it was made in 1974, written and directed by Roberta Finley. And it is an adult film, hardcore film. And it stars Darby Lloyd Raines, Alan Marlowe, Mark Stevens, Jamie Gillis, Jennifer Jordan, and Eric Edwards stand out. And it's, it's a similar premise. Um, Steve, oddly enough, is, is the main character. He is murdered. He is, he is hit by a car. And um, after telling his pregnant girlfriend to get out of his life, anyway, he goes to heaven and he's granted a chance to return. But the, the, the twist with this one is he must return to earth, but he must hook up with a man as nasty, piece, as, as nasty a piece of work as what he was. Lo and behold, he runs into Jamie Gillis, 
So anyway, you can draw your own conclusions from there, but it's really good. It was very well done. I enjoyed it very much, and I thought of it when you had recommended Cleo Leo. I thought, there's another film with you know, the same kind of plot. It's got the angel concept, too, and uh, so, which actually is, is more similar to Switch, I guess, but... Um, yeah, the whole thing of going, you know, to Earth and then returning and getting the chance to kind of make things right and and uh, yeah, it was good. It was well done. I almost think that it's a little bit more, and I hate to say this, it's a little more true to life because I think if you were to switch genders, you would probably be wanting to experience what that other gender experiences during sex. I mean, at least that's probably where my mind goes to anyway. It's just like, hey, great. I got tits. This is awesome. I'll go hook up with Jamie Gillis, a master coxman like Jamie Gillis. Yeah. Did you did you happen to see it, Mike? I did. I, I started watching it earlier today. I could only listen to it because I was watching it at work. So was uh, listening to the interactions. And um, yeah, I, well, you really we talked about Jamie Gillis before on our um well on a couple episodes but primarily on our Misty Beethoven episode and and the Water Power episode and he you know, it doesn't get much better than him. I mean, all the actors that we've talked about tonight are just, you know, top-notch folks and Gillis was another one of those people where it's just like you got such a great performance. I read a quote from Roberta Finlay where she was talking about um, how she would get people who could act and then screw rather than getting people who could screw and then right. trying to make them act. Right. Yeah. Using her words, I think. I'm, I don't generally use the word, the screw word, but yeah, just that was her thing. And all of these people that are in here, I mean, you know, we, we've talked a little bit on the show before about Eric Edwards and yeah, Darby Lloyd Reigns was fantastic in it. And these are great performances and a really compelling story. And yeah, there's some silly stuff. Like when she gets, <laughs> when the man gets hit by a car and then when she, she comes back as a woman and then tries to find the guy who hit her and then what ends up like, did she give him a hand job or a BJ in the, in the van? Yeah, I think so. It's been a while since I've seen it, but, and that's what you can get away with. Of course, making it the adult version. I found this more compelling than the Blake Edwards film. Yeah, I just was yeah. more invested in these characters. And I, I found these people, much more true to life than than the other roles. And I wasn't offended by this. I thought that they, again, the way that they played with the gender stereotypes and everything I thought was fantastic. I thought it was cool, too, how when he is restored as Stephen, but, you know, he goes to heaven, and, of course, he is rewarded for his painful experiences as a woman, you know, sexually, you know, with the angels and... I thought that was just kind of funny. Like, it was just, it was just, I just, you know, like you say, it wasn't offensive. It was just, okay, well, this is a beautiful tie, and this is, this is you know, how it should be in, in the adult film world. This is how they would hey, bring about a happy ending to the characters. <laughs> <laughs> it was just yeah. funny. And you can use happy ending in so many ways in that that phrase, yeah. But it was good. I mean, I say, and Roberta, of course, ahead of her time, and... And this was done, you know, 17 years before Switch. And, of course, she was probably inspired by some, some of the films, you know, from her, her time growing up and, you know, to create that. 
Yeah, there was a movie that was based on a play, a movie called Goodbye, Charlie. Yeah, I've never seen that. I read about that, yeah. Yeah, it was released in 1964, and it was a, a Vincente Minnelli film, and it was based on a, a, a play by uh, George Axelrod, who gave us a lot of great plays over the years, a lot of great screenplays. I mean, his, he, his work was the basis of The Manchurian Candidate and a whole lot of other stuff. I got to say that for a movie adapted from a stage play, it was one of the stagiest things that I've seen in a long time. We've talked on this show before about stage to screen kind of stuff and what makes a good adaptation. The not here. I mean, so much of these uh, scenes take place in one or two locations and they go on forever. And you just really feel like you're stuck there. And like, we start off with some good action. We start off at a, a like a big party on a boat, and it's kind of neat to see some of the people that are there. Like Walter Matthau is there, and he goes in, and he's actually the guy who shoots uh, this Lothario who's been sleeping around and sleeping with uh, Matthau's girlfriend or whatever relationship that is. And then we drop that whole thing like it's hot. So we've got the going into the water thing very Cleo Leo. And then later on, probably like almost, it felt like 20 minutes, but it might not have been that long. Here comes, we're at Tony Curtis's house and here comes Pat Boone of all people showing up with Debbie Reynolds and Debbie Reynolds has re been the reincarnation of this guy who we didn't even really see his face. I think we just saw like him in profile and then we see his ass as he's trying to get out of a porthole on this boat. And it takes forever for her to talk. Basically this is, it's kind of a mix of, or like what Cleo Leo and switch and angel number nine are basically, we're pulling a lot of stuff from this film as far as you know going into the water and coming out her having this friend and you know but i don't think that tony curtis rapes her at one point so i think we're okay with that i don't think that would have happened then yeah takes so long for things to get going and this character is unredemptive like we have talked about all of these characters especially leo leo uh, blockman very redemptive and i don't know if you could say the same thing for the amanda character from switch no i didn't feel she was no no but you definitely can for the character in angel number nine has been redeemed and also rewarded the character that that uh, debbie reynolds plays is not redeemed whatsoever in fact gets killed again and rather than coming back as the male form she comes back as a dog it's like this reincarnation in reverse because she goes from man to woman to dog. It feels like maybe there should have been some more steps in there or something. <laughs> and and I think that's terrible if that is what we're led to believe because then again it still plays into this misogynist standpoint of of course men yeah. are better than women woman, because you'll be right and then the woman and the dog. Yeah, an animal at the lowest of the pole. No. I mean, if you really <laughs> wanted to go one further, it would have been turned into a dog. Then the dog gets killed. Then turned into a woman. I mean, that would. Even be worse. <laughs> and that was 1965? 1964, yeah, oh, right wow. at the tail end. So. Wow. 
Well, it's been attempted many times, that's for sure, that theme. Yeah, I went back and I was looking, and there were some other stories where it was kind of similar. I mean, we talked... Um, uh, we've talked before when we talked about Shakespeare as far as like women playing men's characters and everything, but as far as being reincarnated as a man or, you know, being forced to live as a man, like all of those things that I mentioned earlier, as far as like 18 again and uh, vice versa and all that stuff, there's, it's always, you see the other person on screen at the same time. So you're really like sharing that experience with somebody, you know, even if it's like a freaky Friday or wasn't there just there's just one recently with uh, uh, J- uh, Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman where they switch places. Oh, so, right. Yeah. And that was the Lothario switching places with the married man. And so, yeah, this is a very common theme as far as that goes. But as far as the switching of gender, um, not, uh, you know, it's it's not nearly as common, but it definitely is a, is a trope that we've seen throughout. I, I think it's both in... Uh, you know, literature and then into movies. But I think that these are probably like our biggest signposts as far as these goes. There's probably like one more or two more that are probably staring us in the face that we're forgetting. But I think that these four films in sequence are very interesting to look at just to see, especially to think, you know, one from the 60s, one from the 70s. One from the tail of the 80s, and then one from the very beginning of the 90s, and just to see how the attitudes change over a 40-year period, mm-hmm. I thought was, was pretty neat. And I, I'm i wondering, you know, uh, Rob, would you say, like, do you want a man? Does that count for, like, the, the late 90s? I have no idea what that even is. I, I, <laughs> I thought that was a person. I thought she was a, a lawyer in Detroit. <laughs> With really big red ruby lips? Yeah. No, it was a. For those that aren't hip, there's a there's a lawyer named Jumana Kairos who has a bunch of billboards around town. Anyway. Oh, okay. It was a uh, 2002. Sorry, I I misspoke. It was the early 2000s, and it was one of these. Uh, it was kind of like Ladybugs. Do you remember that one with Rodney Dangerfield about the boy playing for the girls' soccer team? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of. Yeah. but that's like Tootsie. That's you know people yeah, putting on yeah. a role as opposed to being I'm stuck in this body that isn't my right. body. Yeah, you can take off the Mrs. Doubtfire makeup whenever you oh. want, but. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Another troubling that, film. That, yeah. that one's troubling. There's a what is it? Uh, our good friend Adam had the what was it? The the ladies from God, I can't remember what podcast, but we we're talking about like how Mrs. Doubtfire is actually a horror film. It's actually pretty bad. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. the the We Hate Movies guys did a really good interpretation of that yeah. too. And them talking that. about. <laughs> Them talking about the financial hardship that Robin Williams' character must put upon his uh, Harvey Firestein brother character <laughs> is just hilarious yeah. stuff. <laughs> Especially that one scene where he goes through and is all the different women characters is like, Do you know how much money you're costing me in latex? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it all depends on how you want to view it. I mean, I, I, I was looking mostly at. Um, people who are, you know, in a body that isn't theirs, as opposed to um, a situation that would be more, um, you know, people dressing up. 
Right, right. Yeah, actually having to live in that other person's gender. And it's funny because, you know, we get a little bit of this kind of like drag king thing with the um, Ellen Barkin character. Mm -hmm. She gets her hair cut, you know, shorter. Yeah, yeah. And that's funny, too, because I think her with the short haircut, she's so cute with Mm -hmm, that haircut. mm -hmm. And immediately she starts to get shit about like, well, what'd you do to your hair? Yeah, all of a sudden she's this total butch, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are guys that will leave women if they get their hair cut too short. I like, know. honest to God, I know you know this, Jill, but I'm just saying to the audience, like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I was astounded to find out that, you know, that hair to some men is so important. You know, it's your crowning glory. Yeah, but where did that come from? I mean, that's, I just don't understand that such a control thing, you know, and it's such a, I mean, it's controlling in that you insist that your woman wear her hair a certain length or a certain style. And that if she changes that you're going to denigrate her or just pick up and go, that's crazy talk. I mean, it's not funny, but yeah, that's, that's very real for a lot of relationships. I think fortunately my husband doesn't mind short hair. So is there anything else we need to say about these ginger swap movies before we take our final break? Um, yeah, do yourself a favor and don't watch Switch unless you want to get upset. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't get it. It's one of those films that for me, and 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 I missed out and not ex- and it didn't explain exactly where I had my head uh, realigned when it came to Pretty Woman, and I have to give uh, kudos to Mr. Lloyd Kaufman for that because in his first book. He talked about being on an airplane and they were playing Pretty Woman and he was watching it with his daughters and going, this is terrible. My daughter should not be watching this movie. And it totally made me look at movies in a different way and specifically that one and go, yeah, what kind of um, politics are in these things and what kind of stories are we continuing to sort of feed ourselves with and narratives that um, can be troubling in certain ways, I think. All right. So let's go ahead and take one more break. We're going to play a preview for next week's show. Long, long time ago, ten of us men went on the swamp to hunt the eggs of Kumang, the magpie goose. This young one was thinking wrong thoughts. So this old fella tell him a story. A story before a long time ago before we can remember. <laughs> this story has too many words. But not enough women. There's war in this story. And sorcery. And a belly as big as a mountain. There's wrong love. And there's wrong revenge. Maybe it's a bad ending. Maybe it's a good one. It's not like your story. It's my story. My story you've never seen before. 
That's right. We're back next week with something completely different, and I don't mean that in that Monty Python way, than what we've talked about today. We're going to land down under and way out in the bush. We talk about an Australian film, Ten Canoes, and we'll be joined by special guest co-host Miguel Rodriguez. And before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Jill Nelson. Now, Jill, last time we talked to you, you were working on a book project uh, rather personal to you. and wanted to know how that's coming together. Yeah, I'm still working on it. I've actually finished the first draft, and I'm just working on editing, proofing. And uh, it's going well, though. It's, uh, it's a story about a six-month hitchhiking, uh, youth-hosteling road trip I did with a girlfriend when we were 17 and 18, 1976. Tapes from California, and uh, yeah, it's coming along well. Just to remind folks, you are the author of the Golden Goddesses book, as well as a biography of John Holmes. So this sounds like it might be a little different fare. Very different. I just needed a little diversion. No, I, it is very different. It, it, I just fortunately had kept a journal. It's the only time in my life I kept a journal when I was on that trip. We have some pictures to accompany the story. They're, they're sort of, you know, they're, they were taken with a brownie camera, so they... They're very reminiscent of, of that decade. I just wanted to do something a little bit different. I had this journal, as I say, and my friend had kept a diary, so I just kind of pieced together the story, and a lot of it is emotional, you know, the, the, the feeling of we would meet people, you know, form these kind of fast friendships, and, you, and then two days later they'd be gone, and you knew you're never going to see them again, you know, and then you're on the road, and the next stopover, same thing happens. So a lot of it is is about the people we met, you know, the places we saw, the experiences, and it is really a coming-of-age story. It's a cliche, but it really is for both of us. Well, that sounds great. Where can people uh, find out about this and find out about you? I have a blog. Uh, it's called 1976 Tapes from California, and I've also got a blog for Golden Goddesses and 25 Legendary Women of Classic Erotic Cinema, 1968 to 1985. And there is, we have a blog too for John Holmes, The Life Measured of in Inches, which I co-authored with Jennifer Sugar. Very cool. Well, thanks again, Jill. We'll be sure to link to your stuff over at our website, projection-booth.com. That's also the place where folks can go over and find links to our iTunes page, where they can leave us a review, leave us some stars. That's always a nice thing. Or at our website, you can link over to our Patreon page, where you can pledge some of your hard-earned cash. It's simple, it's fast, and it will help us take over the world. Swirls and curls of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feathered canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun There rain and snow on everyone So many things I would have done But clouds got in my way I've looked at clouds from both sides now From up and down and still somehow It's clouds illusions I recall I really don't know clouds At all Moons and Junes and Ferris wheels The dizzy dancing way you feel when Every fairy tale comes real I've looked at love that way 
But now it's just another show You'll leave them laughing when you go And if you care, don't let them know They'll give you a self away I've looked at love from both sides now From women blues and still somehow It's love's illusions I recall I really don't know love At all Tears and fears and feeling proud To say I love you right out loud Dreams and schemes and circus crowds I've looked at life that way But now old friends are acting strange They shake their heads They say I've changed well Something's lost But something's gained in living Every day I've looked at life from both sides now From give and take and still somehow It's life's illusions I recall I really don't know life At all It's more than just porno with me. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.